Kaiju Island, the show where a kaiju veteran and a kaiju newbie watch giant monster movies and chat about them. I'm Andrew. And I'm Amanda. So it has been some time since we recorded, Amanda. It's been a millennia. It's been a whole lifetime, it feels. Let's count the ways in which our lives are different now. Well, we got married. We got married again. Again. Second marriage, first husband. Yes. Second marriage, first wedding. No. no second wedding, first marriage. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we moved. We got a kitten. We just got a new kitten a couple weeks ago. I got my new job. I think that had happened before we last recorded. It was around there. It was right around the same time. I think we had one recording since your new job started. Yeah. So what I'm saying is life has gotten increasingly busy for us. And I don't want to say we're not going to do the podcast because we're definitely going to continue doing the podcast. But combined with the fact that our episodes usually take us about five hours to record and then an additional five hours to edit for an hour and a half episode, it does take up a little bit of time. And that's not including the time it takes us to watch the movie multiple times and take notes. Yeah. So we are going to keep doing this podcast for as long as it's fun for us. It just will slow down. We might move to a seasons style, like a TV show or some other podcasts we follow. Yeah. Or it just might be a little sporadic for a bit. Yeah. Or both. <laughs> <laughs> Why not both? So we're just going to jump in this week. This week we watched Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Which was released in 2016. 2016. According to my notes. And the reason I say we're just going to jump in is because there is a lot to cover in this. If you have not seen Shin Godzilla, first of all, go watch it. Don't listen to us destroy, like, not destroy, but don't listen to us spoil Spoil. the movie. (laughs) It is a fantastic film. This is more of a podcast for once you've seen a movie to go share that experience with other people. Yeah. But also, if you haven't seen the movie, it is so dense. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of dialogue. A lot of titles. A lot of characters. And it is fantastic. Yeah. There's just so much to talk about. Yeah. It's very thematically deep also. So let's get going. Let's just do it. Uh, We watched the Blu-ray of the movie, the the original Blu-ray release in the United States. We watched the subtitled version of the movie. It's a little easier for us to catch stuff for notes, I think, with subtitles. But the dub is also fantastic. The dub is really, really good. And Amanda, you've seen this movie before today, right? Yeah, I think this was maybe the second Godzilla movie I've seen. I watched Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, uh, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Hey, you did it! Yeah! Such a hard title (laughs) to remember. Do they call it GMA? GMK is how the fans have dubbed it. Giant Monsters. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Oh, duh. So... I watched GMK first, and I'm pretty sure this was second, so... A weird first two. (laughs) I watched three Godzilla movies before we started this podcast. I think that sounds right. And three Gamera movies. Yeah. Which we'll get to eventually. Yes. Produced by Toho. Obviously, it's Godzilla movie Toho and it's Godzilla. It had a budget of $10 million, and it made $78 million. So it was a pretty successful movie. Yeah, I would say so. It also won a ton of awards the year it came out, including the Japanese Academy, uh, the Japanese Academy Prize, which is basically the Japanese Academy Awards uh, for Best Picture. And I'm pretty sure we haven't had a Japanese Godzilla since then, right? Not live action. Yeah. We've had some animes. 
which we also watched. Yes, but not for the podcast. <laughs> but they haven't had a live-action Godzilla movie since then. Right. And before Shin Godzilla, the most recent released Toho Godzilla movie was 12 years before it. So he's back with a bang. Yes. And I think that's the largest gap in the series is 12 years. Well, I remember you telling me about when this was released, your your experience with it. Yeah, I first watched it in theaters with uh, some friends. And that was a really, really fun experience. So in 2004, Toho released Final Wars, Godzilla Final Wars, which we will definitely have to get to at some point, as a big, like, 60th anniversary, God, no, 50th anniversary Godzilla movie. Big celebration, big, like, end to the series is what it felt like. And we all just kind of assumed we wouldn't get any other movies. The uh, legendary American Godzilla movies, I think, broke that a little bit beforehand. I think 2014 was the first American Godzilla movie. But Shin Godzilla was a big deal that that Toho was making another Godzilla movie. So this is, a, you know, this is an exciting movie for a lot of reasons. Yeah, you felt like you may not get another Godzilla movie for a long time. And it was a big gap, but... It was sooner than you expected, I think. Yeah. So the movie starts with a boat, the Glory Maru. It's been found vacant off the coast of Yokohama, and there's no damage to the boat. It's completely empty. They have people from the Japanese equivalent of the Coast Guard, it seems like, who are coming on board, and it's pretty pristine. They find some shoes that have been left, all neat by the stairway, and they find an envelope on a desk... And on the envelope is written, do as you like. We will certainly get back to. So, Isn't there also like an origami crane? Did you say that? I don't remember. I think there's an origami crane, which is another clue for one of the later mysteries. Oh, I don't remember that. Um, Because when I was writing notes, I didn't know to write certain things down. Um, So on the envelope is written, do as you like, and there's an origami crane. So we start out with a bit of a mystery buildup. Yeah. I also really love that we start off with this boat because I think it is a subtle reference to... Do you remember when we had our first movie? We discussed how one of the big inspirations for Godzilla was the Lucky Dragon number 5. It's a real-life boat that was... Affected by radiation from testing? Yeah, a fishing boat. And all those fish made it onto the market in Japan. And there was a whole thing. Um, Very good. (laughs) I like to think that starting off with a boat that has a similar name, um, I think, is maybe a a reference to that. It's an Easter egg. It's an Easter egg, yeah. But yes, we're starting, we're already building the mystery. And then an explosion. Yeah, it starts off with a bang. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's really close to where the boat was found. I don't know if it's that clear. I'm not sure where the boat was found. Oh, they they made it seem like it was close to the boat because it jumped right from one scene to the other, yeah. working in the water, so... it's. I think it's unclear, but maybe. There's an explosion in the water somewhere. Yes. <laughs> from the explosion, we see something red leaking into a tunnel below the water. Mm-hmm. And then we go straight into a meeting of the Prime Minister's personnel. The Prime Minister isn't there yet. There's Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary Rando Yaguchi, mm-hmm. who is one of the main characters. He's, so remember he's that. Basically our main character. Yeah. And 
he's talking with the Ministry of Defense, Yusuke Shimura. So to give you some context, Yusuke Shimura is basically Yaguchi's right-hand man. He does a lot of the footwork for Yaguchi. Yeah, they're, they're, they're around each other a lot in this movie. But this meeting, they're basically talking about what's going on. They're just giving updates about what's happening so that they can start tackling what to do about it. We see a shot of the water. There's some churning and some steam and there's red in the water where it occurred. It kind of looks like blood is spreading in the water. And I don't know if they ever actually talk about what this red is. No, uh, I will talk about some theories later on, though. Okay. It reminds me a lot of the newest anime, though. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between those two. Well, I don't know when we'll talk about that, but we'll have to talk about that at some point. When we get to the anime, we'll definitely have to do an episode on the anime, but we'll come back to that similarity. Yeah. But officials are evacuating the area. They show a lot of scenes of people goofing off. They're not really taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are taking videos on their cell phones. They're really excited. They're part of some type of event going on. They yeah. don't know what it is, but in a world of social media, they're excited to just be a part of mm-hmm. something interesting. No one's dead. It's not anything huge yet. It's yeah. It's like a big weird thing. They're getting evacuated. I get it. And then the prime minister arrives at the government building. The prime minister's name is Seiji Okuchi. They're hypothesizing causes for this explosion. They think maybe it's an underwater volcano or a new geothermal vent, and which doesn't really make sense because it's occurring over a tunnel, but yeah. they're just trying to figure out what could possibly be causing this. And they're take, they're like taking down a lot of those theories, too. It's like previous geological surveys would have found an underwater vent they would have found a volcano like they're going through the like thought process verbally yaguchi theorizes that maybe there's something on the seafloor he seems like he has something to back that up but he says it's colossal the sea where the explosion happened is boiling so they think that the creature has to be more than 100 degrees celsius obviously yeah and then they decide to call a cabinet meeting and so they all get up and walk into another room with more people. With more people. On the way, special advisor to the prime minister, Hideki Akasaka, who's another main character, which is why I bring up his name. There's going to be a lot of names in this. I'm going to try to only mention the names of the people who we see a lot. And I am not going to talk about every single actor who's in this movie because there's a lot. I'll bring them up if they're like they connect to something else, but in general... All these names are on like IMDb. Go find them. They're all fantastic. They all do a really good job. I think we maybe get the names of like 50 or more characters because they flash them on the screen when they're first introduced. Yeah. And then again later as titles start changing, mm-hmm. which we'll get to. But Akasaka pulls Yaguchi aside and tells him to toe the line. Like, look, you're a new politician. Don't be so argumentative. Just think about your career. Yeah. This leads to a cabinet meeting, more governmental stuff. <laughs> There's even a part in this scene, I believe it's this scene, where they're talking about stuff and the screen goes black and it says, basically, we've just cut out five minutes of talking. Like, even the movie knows there's too much bureaucracy going on. But it seems like, at least for now, the excitement's dying down. Yeah. In this meeting, Yaguchi brings up the big creature theory and he's reprimanded for joking. Mm-hmm. Which I can see. Yeah. 
I can see if someone says it's obviously the Loch Ness Monster that people yes. would assume that they were just trying to make light of things. It is a nonsense idea. Yes. At this point, at least. And then the very next scene is a shot of this <laughs> giant tail coming out of the water. Yes. This is, spoiler alert, Godzilla. <laughs> uh, Godzilla has five forms in this movie. Also spoiler, I guess. This is considered his first form, is tail and water. You could actually buy, like, toys of just tail and water form. It doesn't have a name. A lot of the other forms do have names, but this one is just a tail. I would love to have the forms of Godzilla from this movie lined up left to right Uh on a shelf. Yeah. So then everybody gets up from the meeting, they bow, and then the, the ministers all go back to the prime minister's office for... An emergency summit to determine the creature. The first, the beginning of this movie is so much moving from room to room. It's so much nonsense. Yes. But they come down to there's basically four options here. They can do nothing, wait for it to go away. They can kill it. They can chase it away. Or they could try to capture it. And Yaguchi is a fan of trying to learn about it. He sure. really wants, he thinks it can be really beneficial to science, and he's more for just figuring out what's going on. I think that's the standard protagonist opinion in these kinds of movies. Which doesn't stick around for long in this one. No. <laughs> it never does. <laughs> well, in the first one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he held on to it for a while. Dr. Yamane was crying because yeah. you remember he had his emo moment in a dark room. He's yeah. like, turn off the light. Leave me here. <laughs> There's reports that the creature is moving to the Tama River. So they hold this emergency academic conference on giant unidentified creature where they call maybe a handful of the top biologists and zoologists of Japan who are just supposed to theorize what's going on and try to figure out what to do about it. And all of them are just kind of wishy-washy, and then the only thing they end up coming out with is that it's impossible to tell without more information, which, duh. Yeah. None of them are willing to stake their reputation on it. On any type of actual theories. Exactly. And, I mean, that does make sense from an academic standpoint. In a clear, in a purely research standpoint, you don't make assumptions very much. Like, you make hypotheses, but then you don't conclude anything that's not there in the numbers. So I yeah. can see their perspective on this, but it's not helping. No, it's not. In this situation, you need someone who like can look at the situation and come up with something. Anything. Anything. We see some spines coming out of the steam and this big wave of caused by something huge is pushing this crowd of boats and into this bridge and breaking the bridge away. Yeah, just shoving a ton of boats. So Yaguchi goes to talk to, I don't remember who it is, but he goes to talk to somebody and he says, give me anyone who can do anything other than say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So they bring in the Environment Ministry Deputy Chief, Wildlife Division, Hiromi Ogoshira, who everyone's kind of, it's implied that she wouldn't normally be here under her title. She is, um... One of the big fan favorites from this movie. She is a beloved character. She was memed all over the place. I totally get it. She's great. So her big idea is it may come on land. It looks like it has legs from the way it's walking. Yeah. They kind of compare it to a lungfish. Mm -hmm. They have this weird big discussion about what department does this fall under. And the environmental minister says that it would be crushed under its own weight. So it's impossible that it would come on land. Which is always the thing that gets said about Godzilla is 
So there's a, a law in physics, the square cube law, that the larger an object gets, the more difficult... It, there's a proportional increase in size that I think it's like it multiplies how much volume it has, and so the larger a thing is, the more impossible it is for it to sustain life and that sort of thing. It's a very well-established law in physics and it always gets brought up in why Godzilla is impossible and I hate it. And I love that this movie acknowledges it and then says no. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we did learn in my biology class in college that it's very unlikely for things to get beyond a certain point because their surface area to volume ratio means they can't bleed off heat quickly enough yep. and they can't eat food quickly enough to sustain their weight. Let's remember the point about them bleeding off heat in a moment. I think that's what it is. I don't super remember. I don't really remember a lot from college. If any of my professors ever end up listening to this, I'm sorry. I did my best. But in response to this, Okashira says it's already supporting itself. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that comes out of this is that they decide they need to hold a press conference to keep the public informed, which, you know, great. Absolutely. But Shimura, which is the right-hand man of Yaguchi, he encourages that they only announce the facts. Correct. Only stuff that we have confirmed. We get a very good shot of a giant eye. Kind of looks like a fish eye. Mm-hmm. It's very round with a huge pupil. That eye is based on, in fact, all of this form we're about to see is based on a real deep water shark called a frilled shark. Look it up. They're creepy and weird, and I love them. (laughs) So we have the press conference going on, and the prime minister just gets finished saying there's no danger of it coming ashore, ignoring what Shimura had recommended. And then he gets interrupted by a staff member coming on stage, and he says, it has. It's coming. What? It's come ashore right after I said it wouldn't? We go to some classical music playing as we now get this full shot of Godzilla as he's waddling through the crowded street. And this ain't your pappy's Godzilla. And the the panicked crowds are just fleeing. Yeah, let's get a good description of him, huh? All the forms that Godzilla has in this movie, except for the first form and the fifth form, have little nicknames from the fan community. So, officially, this is just the second form of Godzilla. But, unofficially, they are named after whatever neighborhood that form first appeared in. So, this form was first found in Kamata Ward, I think. And so he's known as Kamata-kun. And he is my baby. He is my son. I will protect him with my life. Trying to get a good picture of him. I actually bought you the Kamada Coon that's supposed to go on a phone charger, so it looks like he's eating your phone as you charge your phone. I love him. <laughs> Amanda, how would you describe Kamada Coon? Well, from the pictures you're showing me, he's he's turned into like a puppy, but he's, he's very cute. He's kind of horrifying and cute at the same time. Uh-huh. He does have gills that look a lot like the frilled shark. Yeah. They're these they look like gashes. Yeah, they look like wounds. They're, like, leaking blood. He has this, these big old fishy eyes. They're very round. And he 
has the two big back legs and his front legs are kind of these little stubby things. Yeah. And he just kind of waddles. He looks like he should not be able to move around. He is terrifying and the fan community has made him a beloved, adorable friend. But he's also gross because he's just leaking this, like, red, bloody fluid everywhere. Yeah. You mentioned that a creature that is that big needs to bleed off heat. And I think, and a lot of other fans think, that the blood coming out of his gills is a cooling mechanism. We will see later that Godzilla has a a cooling problem in this movie. And it is blood-related in every form. And I think this is, like, this form's attempt to keep himself cool. Because, like we said, he was boiling the water around him. So he's trying to release heat by releasing blood. Which makes me wonder why he decided to come on shore. Like, what motivated him to leave the water, which is a natural cooling mechanism? Unclear. At least at this point. So we see the Prime Minister walking with his staff, and he's pissed. But the reason he's pissed is because he was proven a liar on TV. Not because there's now this even greater disaster on their hands. Yeah, there's a giant monster. On shore in a very crowded area. He's pissed because he looks bad. Yeah. Which, you know, doesn't endear him to the audience. No, it certainly doesn't. We get a really nice shot of some blood dripping out of the gills and landing on the street. Mm-hmm. So... Basically, this movie does a lot of cutting back and forth between shots of Godzilla terrorizing and then government not doing meetings. <laughs> so the next hold a meeting for, quote, the first cabinet council for giant unidentified creature form emergency disaster control. Rolls off the tongue. People are walking at the governmental office. And they're just complaining about the red tape. It's very right there. The theme is kind of presented to us. Yeah. Definitely. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. They hold another press conference where all they do is discuss what their plans are Mm -hmm. while they intersperse that with shots of the destruction and more of that classic music. Yeah. uh, There's actually a lot of Akira Ifukube music in this. Um, I don't think necessarily in this part is Akira Ifukube, but Akira Ifukube is like credited as a... Uh, composer for this movie because they use a lot of old school Ifukube soundtracks. At this point they are still debating what the priority is. Whether they should focus on killing it versus evacuating people which seems like those should both be priorities. Yeah, but like they should do both. I don't know why this is a discussion. So they give the order to evacuate the area. They don't have any plans in place so m- most people just have to self-evacuate. They yeah. just can't evacuate an area of this size yeah. very quickly. They say, we'll try to control traffic. And then immediately they sh- cut over to the traffic lights all going out and being out of order. So everyone's having to get out of their cars and evacuate on foot. Mm-hmm. They ask the special defense force, which seems like the National Guard. Self-defense force is the only military that Japan has right now. Oh. As per the uh, treaty that Japan signed at the end of World War II. Good to know. Yes. So it they... is very important to know that for this movie, in fact. <laughs> Good to know. I, I know that does come up a bit. I didn't realize that fact, so that does add some context to things. They asked the Special Defense Force to launch an attack 
But their response is, that's not our area. Uh, yeah. Whose area is it? Yes, I don't know. If it's not the people, the only branch of the military they have, then who would it be? Animal control. (laughs) I don't know. I just love the idea of, like, picturing five guys in trucks with, like, the dog catching, (laughs) like, loops trying to catch, like, a toe. Yeah, trying to catch Kamatakins, and then they fall in love with him, they adopt him. Keep him in their yard. (laughs) Throw a frisbee, he can't grab it. Because he's really dumb. Kamada-kun is sometimes referred to as the baby Godzilla of this movie. And he is very baby-like. Yeah, he he's not graceful. He reminds me a lot of our kitten. Yeah. <laughs> who's constantly falling off of everything. Yeah. Yaguchi tells the Prime Minister that they need to declare a state of emergency, evacuate, and deploy the military. Shimura adds that only the Prime Minister can approve deploying the military. Yep. An action that I believe has never been done in real life. I believe the self-defense force has never been called into action. Yet. (laughs) Don't jinx it. (laughs) Someone mentions that there may be collateral damage. They float asking the United States for help because they have a treaty. Yeah. As part of them signing the treaty that makes it so Japan only has a self-defense force. Basically, they can't have a standing army. They can't, like, have an army to invade places. They can have a self-defense force for protection. And as part of signing that treaty, it's uh, America is supposed to step in and help protect them and stuff. Like, we lend our military to Japan when they need it. That's how the treaty goes. But they ultimately decide that Japan has to take point in this. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think that that's completely right. I don't think that we would be able to step in first. I think that they have to be the first ones to to start off any military motion. I don't know a lot about the political history here, but it does make sense that if something was terrorizing my country, I wouldn't want somebody else with no stake in the game making the calls here. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) It is also just a good idea to keep other countries out of it for a bit. Because they may be having all this bureaucratic nonsense going on, but at least they have some type of fire under them pushing them to decide quickly and do something it's their people so the prime minister does declare a state of emergency and deploys the self-defense force for the first time since world war ii there we go they even said it in the movie there we go at some point during this discussion of like should we launch the self-defense force should we not the entire text of or at least the entire text of the the relevant portion of the treaty is put on screen while three people are talking about the legality of it and whether or not they should do it. And again, we'll come to why this is such a big discussion and why this is super important, but it's grounded in a lot of real world stuff. This movie is very political. Very, very political. Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely a lot of context that somebody in the United States wouldn't have as much of, as opposed to somebody watching this in Japan. Yeah. They would have a lot of this context built in. So I think it would definitely be a different experience than what we have. Yeah. This movie is saying a message about how Japan should move forward as a people. And I think that that's part of why it made such a big impact in Japan. So they briefly show a meeting of the military leaders coming up with a plan. Then they bring that plan to the prime minister. They tell him the elderly and sick might be stuck. Again, they weren't able, they had to self-evacuate. They weren't able to get a lot of assistance since it was a large area having to be evacuated very quickly. And the prime minister says he actually wants to do an investigation first. 
Yeah, they want to check on every house, I guess. I don't know. But Shimura points out that collateral's pretty much unavoidable at this point. Yeah, but I also get his unwillingness to do it without being sure. Because if you're the person who launches the first military action of Japan since World War II, and the very first thing that happens is you get some of your own civilians killed, that's a that's a big deal, right? That is going to look bad for you. So I totally understand why he's not willing to just jump in at, you know, feet first. I get it, but, but how not... many people are dying from Godzilla Exactly. Like, versus the people who would die in them handling Godzilla? Exactly. Like, I get it, but I don't think it's a good decision. <laughs> so then they deploy some helicopters. Mm-hmm. Everyone's sure that that's going to be enough. And Yaguchi cautions against early optimism. I think he's supposed to be, in this whole thing, the voice of reason, the one who has the gut instincts. And... Yeah, he's, he's the main character. He gets main character powers. <laughs> he, so uh, those helicopters real fast, all of the military vehicles in this movie, I remember it being a big deal. They were shown in some trailers, and they are things that the military had the Japanese military had just revealed, like, they were the newest things that the military, like, the reveal of these helicopters and tanks later on were around the exact same time as the trailers for this movie that had them in it. So they definitely were working with people in the Japanese government to to get stuff. So That's cool. You could definitely tell that there is some type of internal knowledge of how the government works in this movie because yeah. it's such an integral part of of the movie of the plot of the movie yeah so they're showing more evacuations they don't know where to send people and then kamana just stops and starts to evolve quote unquote after knocking over a building by flopping onto it i forgot that part yes so he is quote unquote evolving evolving is definitely not the right turn I think this could be a translation error. I don't even know if a lot of people who speak English as a uh, primary language would know what to call it because there's not really an equivalent to that in the natural world. I think the closest you might call it is maybe adaptation. Sure. Like when you move to an area that has a warmer climate than you previously lived in and your body slowly adapts over time. So I think adaptation might be the word to use here. It is the Pokemon version of evolution. Right. Yeah, but evolution, and I'm sure I will have said this already, and I'm probably going to say it a million more times on this podcast because Godzilla likes to evolve, but evolution implies going across multiple generations and that the change can be passed down, where adaptation happens within an individual across their lifetime and is not an inheritable trait. Right. Maybe the ability to adapt is an inheritable trait, but the adaptation itself is not. So I did learn something from college. <laughs> so I redeemed myself a little bit. Yes. So this form is the third form, and he is currently in Shinagawa Ward. So this is Shinagawa-kun. We only see him for a little bit, but uh, how would you describe Shinagawa-kun? Do you want the PC version? Yes, please. Dang. He kind of looks like a tan avocado. Interesting. Doesn't he? I can buy it. Yeah. He's got this wrinkly textured appearance and he looks a little bit like an old man. I don't yeah. know. He's He's basically Kamatakun, but a little more vertical. There's less of the deep 
bloody gills. They're right. they're still there, but they're a lot less prominent. It's right. not like a main feature anymore. Mm-hmm. And his little nubbin arms have kind of popped out, and now he has little T-Rex arms. <laughs> popped out? It's yeah. a very gross that visual. That is how it looks. And that is how it looked when he transforms. He also, this picture I'm showing you doesn't show it, but the where the spines meet his back, he glows red. Just always. Where the spine and the, the skin match. As this is happening, the helicopters are arriving on scene. The Prime Minister gives the go-ahead for them to start their attack. Then they have this game of telephone where the pilots ask the dispatcher, asses, etc. If they can, if they have the go-ahead to attack because there's civilians present. They spot people in the area. Mm-hmm. And the Prime Minister tells them to abort. Yep. And Godzilla goes back to Tokyo Bay. Yep, just returns to the ocean. I wonder, like, I know, as a person who has seen Godzilla movies, that this was not going to be enough. Even if they had attacked here, it probably wouldn't have made a difference. But with their knowledge of this thing who has killed a lot of people and we're pretty sure this will handle it, I feel like... They should have just gone for it. Yeah, with two people in the crossfire, I think it would be... Like, as the Prime Minister, this is your job to make this decision. He was more worried about bad press, I think. As we've already seen, because his one complaint earlier was that he was shown to be a liar on TV. Yes. So they have a few shots of Tokyo recovering from things. They show the Prime Minister's council surveying the damage from the two hours that he spent on land. Yeah. Yaguchi is mentions that he's disappointed it took two hours for them to even mount a response, which yes. they didn't actually end up doing anything with. <laughs> and yeah. Shimura tells him they did the best they could. He says, stop being such a jerk. Like, hey, we're all doing this. We all are working on it. You're not better than us. He's a little bit better than us. I was going to say, that's questionable. So here in this shot where they're all standing out in the rubble, in their blue jumpsuits, is where the uh, references for the first half of this movie kind of take, or the first part of this movie, kind of come to their most obvious to a Japanese audience. This shot looks almost exactly like a shot from a real-world disaster. The original Godzilla movie drew its inspiration from things like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Lucky Dragon that we talked about earlier, and in our first episode. Shin Godzilla, at least this first part, draws inspiration from a much more recent nuclear disaster, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. How much do you know about the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster? I'm sure that you saw it in the news at the time, but you were pretty young. What year did this happen? 2011. It was 18, 18. 17, 18. Not, not necessarily news-watching age. Yeah, I, I'm sure I heard of it at the time. I don't really, I can't pull a lot of yeah. facts about it into my head right now. On March 11th, 2011, Japan was hit with a large earthquake, which would have already been damaging enough. But at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Osaka, the cooling system at the plant, as well as the backup cooling system, were both shut down by the earthquake and the following tsunami, leading to three consecutive nuclear meltdowns. I do remember this. Yes. The resulting disaster is considered the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl, 
and led to 154,000 people needing to be evacuated. Uh, a lot of the issues with how the disaster may have, been, may have occurred come down to the power company failing to meet certain safety standards. But that there, sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a lot of complaint in the direction of the Japanese government at the time, which did not release key information early enough in the day for it to be useful and had a huge delay in responding to the disaster. There's a lot here to potentially go over, but it should be clear from the small overview that I have that there are a lot of connections between the film and that disaster. And it's the inspiration which leads to a lot of the criticisms of government in the movie. The fact that it took them two hours to do anything in the movie is a direct reference to how long it took the government, the real-world Japanese government, to do anything about the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear meltdown. And this movie came out, like, three years later, right? This movie came out five years later. Five years later. That's yeah. right. 2016. So this would be very fresh in their heads. Yes. Because I know, at least in America, we were very conscious of 9-11 and any references that would be made to that five years later. So yeah. to them, which this is probably an equal, if not greater than disaster mm-hmm. to what we experienced, this would be a very obvious reference to people watching with that context in mind. And all those shots of officials standing, giving press conferences in that blue jumpsuit, everyone would be thinking, oh, it's just like the Fukushima disaster. Um, And all these people standing in rubble wearing the official blue jumpsuits, just directly taken from shots after the disaster. It is extremely blatant (laughs) that this is a reference to and like criticism of the Fukushima disaster. They certainly don't hide the themes in this movie. No, they don't. It they, is it is saying something and it's saying it loudly. They even said that they were complaining about all the the red tape earlier in this movie. Yeah. So, I would say there's two halves to this movie as far as theme and that is what this this first part is about is about government red tape slow responses to disaster the people who get killed along the way because of it we'll get more into the other part probably after we finish talking about the movie yeah as that gets introduced because that i don't even think they've even brought up the second half of this well they they started to set the scene for it and we'll get into that so they're surveying for godzilla they're trying to locate him Rando Yaguchi comes back on scene, and he now has a new title that flashes on the screen. It's, he's the Unidentified Creature Response Special Task Force HQ Bureau Chief. Yes, he is. <laughs> he calls up his friend slash co-worker, Shuichi Izumi, and asks him to put together a task force who will speak their minds. He says, quote unquote, people with balls. <laughs> And Shuichi Izumi, I name him. The reason I do that is because he does come back a few times. He's the Nation First Party Deputy Chairman. Next is probably my favorite scene in the movie. I mean, I do like all the giant monster shots, but this is probably my favorite scene. They are showing the formation of this task force. They have this dramatic Ocean's Eleven style music uh-huh. as they're setting up the room. They show them lining up all the printer fax machines Uh, And they have all these rows of laptop with headsets being laid out in a very intentional manner. It's basically the bureaucratic version of an action movie. It is. It's great. 
So Yusuke Shimura, which I mentioned earlier, who's the Ministry of Defense, he comes on screen and he steps up in front of this group that they've assembled and he says that they are a flat organization with no hierarchy, but he's nominally in charge. So he's kind of like the manager of this team, it seems like. So, and I want to read this quote from he, from him. He says, We're a crack team of lone wolves, nerds, troublemakers, outcasts, academic heretics, and general pains in the bureaucracy. And I just, I love that. The people doing the translation obviously had a lot of fun translating yep. that over. Because I guarantee there's not a one-for-one one in the pains in the bureaucracy. <laughs> yes. And as they're doing this, they're flashing across the screen the different characters who are a part of this team. When they say lone wolves, they show Ogoshira, who was the person they brought in earlier, who first theorized that Godzilla would probably be coming on land or could come on land. So this is where we got introduced to the real experts. Yes. So he hands out very small folders to each of them, and he says... This is just the basic specs. This is all we have. And it's basically just a height and weight. And he says, okay, now go. Yeah. The first one that we really zoom in on is Johoku University biologist Hazama. who They had shown him earlier when they were flashing across the different people. He was the one they showed when they were talking about the academic heretics. Yep. He rolls out, it kind of looks like a conspiracy theory map. It's got all of these like scribbled ideas and these things that have been circled like five or six times. And using this, he says he believes that there's more evolutions to come. Yep. And he's right. (laughs) (laughs) So Professor Hazama is played by Shinya Tsukamoto, who I just wanted to briefly touch on. Not because he's important for our podcast, but because I thought it was interesting. Uh, he is a very prolific director, screenwriter, and actor, and more. Um, he apparently has a huge cult following in Japan because he directed uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, which was a huge like cyberpunk movie, a, like a big part of the Japanese cyberpunk movement. And all the pictures I have of him online show him with like a mohawk or like <laughs> just dressed up weird. So I just love that he's he not he's definitely not button up, like he's definitely a weirdo in this movie, but he's such like a low key weirdo in this movie. Not even though cuz they show him with this like weird colorful scarf and yeah. he's kind of like he basically gets treated like a conspiracy theorist in yeah. this. A conspiracy theorist who happens to be a professor. Yeah, and is right. <laughs> So they show the the next person they zoom in on is the MEXT Basic Research Promotion Division Chief, Yasuda. He says he's kind of like their research scientist. He's kind yeah. of the lab person. He says the lab is analyzing the fluids from Yama- um, Kamada-kun. He also has some connections to, like, outside the government that he draws on later, too. Yeah. Ogashira, the... The girl that we talked about earlier. The one female character we've met so far. Yeah, the the woman we've met earlier. She asks if they can get a sample, and Yasuda says that the United States took the rest of the samples, mm-hmm. and the rest is being burned because of the stench, and they think that it could have something to do with the pressure from the United States, yeah. which we will get into later. Definitely. <laughs> 
at this point, my theory on that is that the United States wants to be the one to take lead in this. They don't want to... Maybe. This was my thought at the time, is that the U.S. is trying to be the first to come to the conclusion. Sure. And to have the solution and save the day. Sure, sure, sure. They decide they can't determine the intellect, that it's unlikely he had, that Godzilla has any type of communication. He was he was moving kind of erratically. They bring up the the question of how does he get his energy? They haven't seen him eat anything at this point. Mm-hmm. Ogashir brings up the theory of possibly he has his own version of nuclear fusion. Yep, which is why he needs cooling so much. And again, these ideas will keep coming up and they'll evolve as we go. Yes. So I don't want to get too much into these. Yeah. Ogashira says that there's spikes of radiation along the path that Godzilla took. And then we see that people are wondering on social media about why there's increased radiation because people's private Geiger counters are going off. Yeah. Because, you know, I just have my handy Geiger counter ready. I would if I was living in Japan. That's fair. Like, I, that's the really small detail I really like in this scene is I had never considered that you might own your own Geiger counter, but... Of course. There's so much nuclear energy going on in Japan. Like, you want to be alerted, especially after the Fukushima disaster. Why would you not announce heightened radiation? That seems like a public safety thing. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) That's probably the sketchiest thing they do in this whole movie, to me. So Yagichi urges the Prime Minister to hold another press conference... And Shimura and the other counselors disagree. So again, we're seeing Yaguchi put in the hero role. A U.S. bureaucrat of some kind requests a private meeting with the prime minister. And this is where we meet special presidential envoy Kayoko Ann Patterson. And boy, do we have stuff to talk about with her. (laughs) Kayoko Ann Patterson is played by uh, Satomi Ishihara who was born in 1986, so she's only a couple years older than I am. She's around my age. Let me describe her, and then maybe you can offer us any context to this very strange character. Kayoko Ann Patterson... Weird name. ...is supposed to be a third-generation American. Yeah. She's the daughter of a senator, Uh who, for some reason, has been sent to Japan to act as some type of ambassador diplomat diplomatic envoy from the united states i don't know why they would ever send a senator's daughter who's 32 ish at the time i don't get it she has the heaviest japanese accent because she's japanese but this is she's third generation yeah she's not supposed to be japanese but she is she dresses very japanese yeah she has a very clear japanese style to her which sure you're you're playing up your audience and i get that but it just nothing about her screams american born yeah she looks like somebody who maybe has spent a couple years in america but this was a lot of the discourse in the united states after the movie came out um was this character uh satomi ishihara won a bunch of awards for acting on in tvs and tv and movies and she got this role because she's a uh, very beautiful. She's very pretty. <laughs> uh, she's also a very good actor. Yeah, I would definitely say that she did her role really well. Yeah. 
it was just a strange casting choice. And she also speaks English pretty well. Yeah, I always understood what she was saying. Her grammar was great. I have no complaints about how good her English is. It's just that you can tell it's not an American-born person. It is definitely not American English, yes. She, I believe she had the most recent role before this movie. She had uh, an English-speaking role in it. Um, And I think that that was a big part of how she got this role. And again, she partially got this job because she's very, very pretty. And I think they wanted to make sure that she was very, very pretty to a Japanese audience. Which is why she's dressed in a very Japanese way and not in an American way. Which is fine. It's just weird. But... I guarantee we do that all the time. Oh, for sure. I'm not saying that... I'm not even judging them for the choices they made for this. It's just the the most jarring thing in the movie from an American standpoint. And again, it's all about context. I'm sure people watching this in theaters in Japan, it's not something that they would notice. Because it's kind of like watching a historical movie where they have very modern ideals of morality and they dress very modern. I imagine it's very similar where because that's your context of how people dress and how people speak, that that is something that kind of falls to the background of who that character is. Yeah, It's just not addressing an aspect as opposed to purposely choosing something that's out of place. Totally agree. But it was just very funny from... My perspective, from my context, it was very funny. It would have been great if they got an actual Japanese-American actress, but that is, I don't think that was ever going to happen, so. So, Kayoko requests a meeting with the Prime Minister, a private meeting, and he declines. Yeah. And this is how she ends up having a meeting with Yaguchi. Yes. So... Her request is that she's asking the Japanese government to find a man named Goro Maki. He's the person who predicted Godzilla several years ago and recently landed in Nakeda. What does that mean? Oh, and they they have learned that he recently landed in Nakita. He's a former college professor from Jonan University, which if you're like me... It's not where the other professor works. He works at Johaku University. I just have a thing where if it starts with the same letter, it's the same thing in my head. Yep. Totally makes sense. So she's willing to trade information that America has about Godzilla or that they think could help in dealing with Godzilla for information about where Goromaki might have gone or for his whereabouts. So they switch in and out of English for this conversation. And I would actually say, I think Yaguchi's American accent is a little bit better than hers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the men actually have much better English accent or American accents than her, which is weird. But that's basically to say we were very impressed by everybody's English in this movie. Yeah. Absolutely. This is what we're getting at. Hers was good. Theirs was a little bit better, which is funny because she's supposed to be the American. Yeah. But... Everyone's English was pretty good. And if anybody listening who speaks any languages other than English, if you have any insight onto what foreign languages sound like in American movies, I would be, I would love to hear this perspective. So please tweet us, email us. We'll get to that later. But I would love to hear from you guys. I know there's a whole thing about Spanish. 
Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Everyone speaks one specific kind of Spanish. When... That's because they all get cast from the same area. Yeah. So we jump forward, and the police commissioner is given a report on the information that he's gathered on Goromaki. He says that Goromaki was a biologist who now works for an energy company in the U.S. after being expelled from Japan. Right. The next scene shows Kayoko handing a report over to the Japanese. The report shows that they found Goromaki missing with his boat left adrift. This is the boat we saw at the beginning of the movie, the Glory Maru. They had found the envelope that I also addressed at the beginning. The envelope has written on it, I did as I please, you do the same. She also gives them a report on Godzilla, which is what the Americans are calling the monster, or Gojira. Yeah. Which is what Goromaki called it. Right. So, two things. He names the creature Gojira after a uh, like a legend from his home on Odo Island. Which, if we remember from our very first episode, Odo Island is the fictional island where Godzilla first makes landfall in the very first Godzilla movie. Where they also had an, a legend about a monster named Godzilla. Exactly. Or Gojira, exactly. sorry. Yes. Um, and... What, one really weird detail that they put in about this report is that it's all printed on special ink that can't be copied. But they can hand copy all of this. Oh, I guess she's taking it back with her. Yeah. Well, he says, we'll just take pictures of it. It's like, yeah, of, cr- of course you will. So I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. One thing I keep meaning to ask you, how do we get the name Godzilla from Gojira? It doesn't really have... It doesn't sound the same. Like, I can understand... I don't know. Like, we can say Gojira. It's not an unpronounceable thing. How did we get Godzilla from that? Uh, So, we did actually talk about this a little bit in our first episode, but when you anglicize Japanese characters, there is a... They're not... It's not a J in Japanese. It's a specific sound. So, the way that we transfer those specific sounds to American writing, or to English writing depends on what the current ideas are about translation. So the old way of doing it was that in Gujira, that J, the old way to do it was D-Z-I. And the new way of doing it, the current way of doing it, is J-I. And the Ra, the old way of translating it, would be L-A or L-L-A. And the current way is R-A. So they're both, it's just two different ways of writing the same word. Gojira is not a completely different word from Godzilla. It's just in the English pronunciation, they sound different. But it's just two different ways to anglicize those characters. That makes sense. It's just linguistics and translations have evolved just like uh, any other science. Exactly. So we call it Godzilla because Godzilla has been around the longest for the name. But the actual pronunciation is something closer to Gujira. I can even I can hear Godzilla in that a little bit. Exactly. When you say it with a Japanese accent, I can exactly. hear it more. And my Japanese accent is terrible. But <laughs> it's better than mine, so it, it, of the two of us. As long as you get the idea. That's yeah, all that I care yeah, about. I get it. They do mention, though, in this report, or part of her passing on the report, is Gojira means God incarnate. Mm-hmm. Which it does not. It means gorilla whale. <laughs> but in this iteration, apparently the name comes from the words God incarnate. Sure. 
So we change scenes again. This movie has a lot of scene jumping. It's a very quick movie. It's both a very slow movie and a very quick paced movie. Yeah. No scene seems to last more than a minute, maybe two tops. No time is wasted. And there's a lot of time in it. (laughs) But it also somehow gets the point across of being very drawn out, which I think is what they were going for with all the bureaucratic red tape stuff. All of Okay. There is wasted time, but it's all on purpose. That makes sense, yeah. But basically what I'm getting at is we're in another scene now. Mm-hmm. Um, Shimura has asked a reporter, Hayafune, to find out about Goromaki mm-hmm. in exchange for some exclusive information. Right. And that's that whole scene. Yes. It, it's <laughs> a cool little, like, FBI meeting up with the news reporter before something big goes down and sort they, of thing. they even do it in one of those like stereotypical way where they meet on a bench they don't look at each other yeah yeah <laughs> they just like slide information across the bench yeah as lo- as though they were talking about political corruption <laughs> but they're not they're talking about a giant monster so the task force is now reviewing the information that the u.s gave this information shows unregulated dumping of radioactive waste Mm -hmm. which godzilla fed on and therefore creating the monster that they're dealing with right now right which you know you can see why the u.s was trying to cover it up they didn't want samples around they didn't want anything linking them to the disaster they show a picture of barrels with bite marks in it i don't know if they're bite marks i think it's just decay oh okay because i believe the implication is that he was just a weird ancient fish that was still around. Like a lungfish? Yeah. And not, like, the radiation didn't give him his power to, like, self-mutate. He, like, had that, and the radiation caused him to mutate into something awful. That feeds on radiation. Exactly. Although this Godzilla doesn't feed on radiation. We'll talk about that. (laughs) Well, but, but Goromaki's role, I always want to call him, I always want to pronounce it like it's a sushi. <laughs> Goromaki's role was that he was asked to research this, and his conclusion was that the giant re- creature mutated to withstand the radioactivity. Right. They were provided with some data that Maki had left behind, but it was incomplete and the and completed later by the United States. But they don't know what it is. It's just some. I don't even know how to describe what it looks like. It's just a page full of jumbled numbers it looks like numbers and lines it kind of reminds me of one of those connect the dot yeah puzzles where totally. you have to draw from one to two to three yeah it it's like a combination of that and a but uh, it starts at like ten thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination of that and a uh uh what's it called i was just talking about it yesterday the eye puzzles where you have to unfocus your eyes oh i don't know the, oh the um Magic eye puzzles or Magic whatever Magic eye were. puzzles, yeah. The task force also found some gamma radiation that didn't match any known elements. Right. So they conclude that his body has a new element or new elements of some kind. Right. They talk about how they found that he has eight times the genetic material as humans, which... I don't know what that means. To put that into perspective, I'm assuming that means eight times as many uh, um, chromosomes. Oh. That's my guess. Usually, animals will have, like, a couple pairs more or less than humans. Like, complex animals. I'm gonna look up some facts. Fact-checking with Amanda. Okay. So, for example, we know 
you may know that humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Sure. Mice, for example, have 20, where rats have 21 pairs of chromosomes. Whales have, well, sperm whales have 20 pairs plus two sex chromosomes, so 21 pairs of chromosomes. Okay. Other whales have 42 chromosomes, meaning 21 pairs, Okay. etc. So they usually are pretty close to what we have, give or take a couple chromosomes. But Godzilla's got like 80 pairs. <laughs> Well, he has eight times as many as oh, us. Oh, eight times. So he's got 160 pairs. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, th- that's how I'm reading this. They said as much genetic material. So I'm reading that as number of chromosomes. That makes sense. And you know what? For a creature that self-mutates... Sure. Yeah, I get it. Why not? They predict it'll take years to sequence, which, given how long the Human Genome Project took... Yeah, it took a while. They believe he's capable of self-mutation, quote-unquote, not generational, whatever. Sure, he's he's not mutating, his his kids aren't mutating into a new form, he's doing it to himself. No, 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 it means that his kids aren't, um, mutations are when a chromosome doesn't replicate properly in the gamete, when you're creating the gametes. Right. And so those get passed on to your children. They have a mutation. Right. That's usually how it works. If you get a mutation within yourself, that's usually a cancer. And (laughs) (laughs) not always, but like that's where cancer comes from is when you have um, usually a mistake in a genetic replication of some kind. So because when you do it with an egg or a sperm, that's what's then used as the starting material to then replicate and create a whole being. Right. Whereas if you do it in a grown person or animal in this case, then it's just that cell or that grouping of cells that's going to be affected. So it wouldn't cause a full body change. Oh, unless he can do it across his body because he's special. Yeah. So I'm saying there's some sci-fi like hand waving going on here. Oh, of course. So I would call this an adaptation because... Individuals adapt, what about, generations uh, evolve. What about a metamorphosis? It could be that. He's I could see m- that. Metamorphosing, but he gets to choose what he metamorphoses into. The, the difference being that adaptations are not passed on. Right. It's like if you move to a warmer climate or higher elevations, your body can adapt to those changing circumstances. Getting a tan. But you're not going to pass your tan on to your baby. No. So that's my little minor genetic lesson for you guys. (laughs) Um, Went off on a tangent there. It's just something that always bothers me in movies. And, like, it's been a while since I was in college, so feel free to fact check me on this stuff. But this all feels better to me than... uh pokemon calling it evolution when they turn into a new form at least they're not saying it's evolution that's true a mutation is just when it doesn't replicate perfectly that's what it is yeah and sure maybe if you have full body radiation you can get a mutation like all of your cells can mutate but they're not going to do it in the same way i wonder if the japanese word they used actually does make sense in this context that's totally possible because we do have to keep in mind that this is a translation yeah if you're hearing something underneath us, it may be our new kitten purring very loudly. I don't know if it'll pick up on the microphone, but if it does, just know there's a purring kitten on Amanda's lap. 
or foot under my leg. Yes. But I mean, I feel like we're all better off for having a purring kitten in our lives, even oh, if it's just through the microphone of somebody's podcast. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully you won't hear him knocking anything over. <laughs> so they're theorizing that Godzilla or Gojira has returned to Same Tokyo way. Bay to cool off. He has, they think he has some type of nuclear reactor going on in his body mm -hmm. and that the fins they see are just, are vents. Perfect sense. So he's regressed to a sea creature to readjust his body temperature. Makes sense. Completely. So and they come, oh, go ahead. This is not a new idea, by the way, that Godzilla has like basically a nuclear power plant inside of him. This is something that has been true since at least the 90s, maybe earlier, is this idea that he's a walking nuclear power plant. So that's also cool. I'd be interested to know how long we've had nuclear power plants and how the the science of Godzilla has evolved with our nuclear technology. That sounds like a graduate essay. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But what type of graduate essay would that be? Would that be a nuclear technologies essay or a, like, literature? Nuclear entertainment. I did take a, a class in college called Post-9-11... Oh, no, no, no. It was Nuclear Technology in a Post-9-11 World. So specific. I know. It was just, like, learning about nuclear reactors and how they worked and how nuclear bombs worked and what? i we all joked in the class that we were all going to be on some fbi watch list because we kept <laughs> googling things like how nuclear bombs were created i mean nobody's going to go home and make a new nuclear bomb you never know oh this is funny june 27th of 1954 was in the world's first nuclear power station to generate electricity for a power grid the obninsk nuclear power plant commenced operations in Omninsk in the Soviet Union. I was about to say, I assume it's Soviet. So Godzilla is as old as the oldest power plant. That's a fun coincidence. I know. Or is it? Or as the oldest nuclear power plant, I should sure. say. Sure, sure, I sure. don't even know if it's still in operation. Probably not. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> so they come up with the Yaguchi plan, is what they call it, where they plan to use some type of rapid cooling to freeze Godzilla. And their way of doing this is they plan to use some type of blood coagulant via a compression pump. That's not how blood coagulants work, right? They don't freeze you. Well, they don't freeze you. They just clot your blood. Yeah. It's a weird... They keep... I don't get it. This is another one I just don't get. I don't either. I mean, they, I feel like, have been really good about using solid science mm -hmm. in this even if we don't necessarily agree with the terminology. Sure. I don't know. I'm sh There might be something here. I certainly don't have enough of a specialty in this area to comment on whether that is a, a feasible thing in any world, but... I think just the idea of using a blood coagulant to kill a giant monster is a cool idea. Yes. It just wouldn't freeze him. It's, it's either... Maybe they mean freeze, like, stop him from moving. We'll talk about this later in the movie. Okay, okay. But... My, my, what I'm going to say here is it either is nonsense or it's going over my head. Sure. <laughs> or both. I don't understand it though. Could be both. Yeah. Maybe it has some grain of truth in there. Yeah. So outside they show a crowd 
chanting things like Gojira is God and save Gojira. I love this. It's only in there for this one scene. We don't hear anything else about this. And I love it. It's very legendary. The the legendary movies. How so? Where they're like, um, Godzilla wouldn't be our pet. We'd be his. <laughs> sure. I like that. And how they need the monsters to restore the natural order of things. Sure, sure, sure. I get that. Anyway, that's another tangent for another day. They also then show some shots of the task force just kind of their living situation. A bunch of them are sleeping in the office. Outsiders have been volunteering and bringing in food. They go into Yaguchi's office and make him shower and change. Uh-huh. They're both commenting on how smelly he's gotten. I love that. This is both a very Japanese concept of working so hard that you need to go shower or falling asleep at your desk. It's a right. very Japanese concept. It is. But it's also just cool to see... This movie's really good at showing the consequences of things. And not necessarily even bad consequences, but like... This is a huge disaster. They feel like they're on a timeline, and so we get to see what that means for them. And it's not glamorous. Like, it's not scientists. Um, we You hear the phrase, like, working around the clock, but this is what working around the clock looks like. Exactly. And then he returns. Then Godzilla shows up. He comes from S- uh, Sagami Bay. Up from the depths, 30 stories high. What? Something, something... His head in the sky. Godzilla. <laughs> Is that the lyrics to a, a Godzilla theme song of some kind? Yeah, the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. That was the, the theme. With Adzuki? Godzuki. Godzuki. Adzuki is a bean. I know. I thought they named him after a bean because he was small <laughs> Godzilla. It works. It does. I'm bringing up a picture of Shin Godzilla. We named our cat Mochi because he's squishy and sweet. That is true. Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can get a picture with them thighs. And just to reiterate, so, so far we've had the aquatic version of Godzilla. That's the first iteration. Yep. Then we get Kamada-kun. Correct. Which is the bloody squishy puppy dog. Uh Uh-huh. After that, he morphed into Shinagawa-kun. Hey, you remembered. Very good. I have it in my notes. I'm cheating. Cheater. (laughs) And this one's name is... He's landing in Kamakura, so he's Kamakura-san. So, why is this one San and not Kun? Because he's like the fully, he's the adult. Yeah, Kun implies... Like a young boy, A young person, yeah. Um, And San is what you say to an adult, so... So this is the adult Godzilla. This is the adult Godzilla. Or at least the fully formed Godzilla. Alright, I have him straight on here, and there's some other pictures. Would you like to describe... He got them thunder thighs. He does. <laughs> and he still has the little the, the dinosaur arms that he's, kind of um, folded in. He's got little tiny dinosaur arms, and the palms are always face up. It kind of looks meditative. He never moves his arms. I don't think they work. But they're always like... They're vestigial arms. They're vestigial arms, yeah. He has a weird cracked texture yep i would say Mm -hmm. and an interesting tail that's as tall as he is he's got a very very long tail it's hard to see but there is a little mouth on the end of the tail uh i'm pretty sure it's like a full-on skull isn't it? it's like a skull thing yeah um a lot of fans broke down pictures of him when the trailers were first coming i'm trying to 
figure out what it means, and we'll talk about what it means later. He also has this ginormous jaw. Yes. It opens up that, and it looks like a snake dislocating its jaw. Yeah. He doesn't open his mouth yet for a while, but when he do, it go big. <laughs> uh, he's got teeth all over the place. He needs to see a, a orthodontist. A lot of the choices for his design do scream like weird mutations, mm-hmm. like teeth where they shouldn't be. And yep. And he's also got tiny little beady eyes that are basically exactly the same as his previous forms. They're just weird. They kind of look like googly eyes. They do look like googly eyes. Uh, <laughs> somebody just stuck googly eyes on there because they're like, I don't know. It's like one of my favorite things about the design. So I want to talk about this design a little bit. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt your storytelling. This design has a name, just like every other uh, Godzilla design. Do you want to guess what the name is? Kamakura-san? N- no. <laughs> Shingoji. Oh, duh. Is it a... Is it a person in the suit? No. There is no practical Godzilla in this movie. However, there were some practical scenes shot uh, where they used a big old puppet. And if you haven't seen the sh- the shots of the puppet, go look them up because they look incredible. Um, I'm so sad those got cut out. I really yeah. wish we could have seen that. The other thing is, actually, yes, kind of, there is a person in the suit. It's not a suit. It's CG, but there is someone doing uh, motion capture for it, which is weird because all he does is walk, (laughs) but uh, he's being played by Monsai Nomura, who did, he did the motion capture for the fourth form in the film. That's this form. And while he was doing the motion capture, he had a big foam tail (laughs) and a Godzilla head on the top of his head. Man, I want to see that. I can find you pictures. He is actually a relatively well-known actor also. He was, he's best known for two movies that I've never seen, Onmyoji and Onmyoji 2, which I believe are supernatural samurai movies, I think. And most importantly to the two of us, uh, we have seen him in Akira Kurosawa's Ron. I was really going to guess Ron. Which character was he? He was the blind flute-playing hermit. Who has the saddest story in the movie? Oh no! Um, if you haven't seen Ron, I highly recommend it. Just be prepared. Yeah. Just steal yourself emotionally. But this is basically like how Benedict Cumberbatch motion capped a dragon, so we get great shots of him like crawling on the ground, making that is faces. true. That is true. Yes. The thing I want to say about the design is that the design draws a lot on from the original Godzilla suit. Uh, it's got. The shape of the head of the original Godzilla suit. It has very tiny eyes, just like that. It's got uh, the shapes of its spines are just like the original. And honestly, I think it draws the most from that weird puppet head we saw in the original <laughs> Godzilla. Because that puppet, its teeth were all over the place. The puppet, the puppet's mouth was not right. And Do you it had think that teeth? was, like, the inspiration for this whole movie, is that one scene? I think it's a big inspiration for the design, yeah. I really do. I bet it would be way better to play Godzilla in motion capture than in those suits where people get caught on fire and drown. Oh, yeah. No, I I am sure that that is true. I feel like I would volunteer to be cast as Godzilla for a motion capture thing in a heartbeat. <laughs> 
I would not be put in one of those suits. I don't even like wearing sweaters around the house. Yeah. This Godzilla also represents a war between Godzilla creators. At the time, this was the tallest Godzilla had ever been. Shin Godzilla's height is 118.5 meters. The legendary Godzilla's height, I believe, is like 115. This is like three meters taller or something like that. It's like when you put an antenna on the top of your building so that it counts as the world's tallest (laughs) building. Has that happened? Oh, yeah. That's totally a thing. That's funny. And he was the tallest until the anime trilogy came out, uh, which no one's ever going to make a bigger Godzilla than the anime trilogy. (laughs) How big was the animated Godzilla? Uh, very. (laughs) Fair. So they call a meeting with the Prime Minister. Their main goal that they discuss is they need to keep Godzilla from metropolitan areas, prevent radiation where people live, and to keep him from the nuclear plants. That's like the big two goals they talk about. Mm -hmm. They bring up the Aguchi plan, but it's not ready yet. It has a lot of moving pieces that they have to get together. Yeah. So... The Prime Minister gives the go-ahead for the SDF and says they have unrestricted access. They can go ahead and try to take on Godzilla however they feel they need to do. Mm-hmm. So they scramble the... Scramble the jets. <laughs> scramble the jets. Although they're helicopters, I think. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Yeah, there's helicopters, tanks. They do a full-on operation. There's multiple different vehicles. Um, they said, there's no stragglers this time. And the PM's like, great, go for it. <laughs> but obviously there's no effect. I, just like anyone who's ever watched a Godzilla movie would expect. But it's really cool to watch because you have these full squadron of helicopters and tanks and artillery. And every single shot hits. It's not like in the first Godzilla movie where every shot is missing. They are missing. They are hitting exactly on target. He's a huge target who moves very slowly. It's just so cool. Like they are professionals in this. Yeah, they, they are not. Be. They are not making a mistake. It's just not working. At no point in this movie do they ever say that the military didn't do their job or wasn't up to it. Right. It's is... it's about the people dictating what the military is doing. Yeah. It's We're... the red tape getting in the way. Huh. That might be part of the theme of the movie. <laughs> Put a pin in that. Yeah. So there's clearly no effect from the machine guns or the missiles. They have the tanks firing at his legs while they're shooting artillery fire at his face, which does slow him down, and then he stops completely. They're dropping bombs on him. And there's a cool moment where you see a bomb hit right next to his eye, and it just bounces off and then explodes. (laughs) So it's very clearly just not getting through. Yeah. He starts to face away... And then just kicks a bridge at a tank and continues going forward. Yep. And starts going towards the unevacuated areas. So they give up. I guess. They then ask the U.S. to step in and help. So the U.S. brings in bombers. They propose the uh, bombing zone for the U.S., which shows about, like, 50 overlapping circles across the city. They start evacuating people underground. And they're using they're using underground arcades, which yeah. is cool. I didn't know that existed or that that was a common enough thing that they could use it for evacuations. I mean, there's arcades everywhere in Japan. Yeah, but underground arcades, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. We actually have a couple. Do we? Yep, we have at least one. Why have you never taken me there? A uh, little friend of ours called COVID. 
Okay, but we started dating before COVID. Mm. That's not an excuse. They do convince the prime minister to evacuate the government officials in case the bombing doesn't work. So they have a good shot of, this, of the, strike che- the strike team stuffing boxes and grabbing as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And Yaguchi and Shimura get stuck in traffic. And the strike actually starts early. Yeah, they're moving the strike up. And it's like, excuse me, what? We're evacuating a city. You can't just change the timeline. Yeah, and it's not even the people... It's not even Japanese officials moving up to strike. It's the U.S. officials. So it's like, sorry you guys aren't ready for us to bomb you, but we're starting now. It's so messed up. Which also might be part of the theme. Andrew's so ready to start bringing up the theme. I just... I'm... Yeah. It's, we get it. I, I get it. It's sprinkled throughout this movie. We're definitely going to have a good in-depth conversation about it, but I want to be able to talk about all the pieces of it. So I want to wait till the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a cascade of blood from Godzilla's back as bombs land and they start playing this really sad song. Let's talk about the how this scene plays out and then we'll circle back on the song. Okay. Because it is important. And Godzilla starts glowing purple his jaw actually splits open. Mm-hmm. He's got like three jaw. His lower jaw splits into two. It looks like a like a flower kind of. Yeah. And then he releases this oil or smog, this this fluid of some kind, and then a wave of fire sweeps through the city. Uh, and yeah. And then quickly turns into this purple beam. The fire is so devastating looking because it sweeps through. It shows ward after ward getting covered in this flame. And then, yes, as you said, he has a purple beam, which means that as of Shin Godzilla, his breath weapon has been every color on the rainbow. (laughs) And it's almost like he was kind of having to build up to the beam. Yeah. First, the, like, the smoke and smog stuff and then fire. It's kind of like lighting a Bunsen burner, like you're going for that bright color i was gonna say it's like turning on a really old car and it puffs out the smoke yeah. and then it goes i guess bunsen burners hopefully don't put out smoke first yeah, no. but like you want it to you go from the red to the the brighter color maybe sure it's a cotter and it also the purple beam is not coming directly out of his mouth it's actually projected a little bit like the origin point is outside of his mouth a little bit which i think implies that it is hot enough that you can't see it close to his mouth or that it's igniting or it's igniting something further from it like he's putting out the gas and then it's igniting just outside of his mouth now the weird part is purple means it's actually a very cold fire purple is not a hot color but that's okay so i just looked it up and the some elements that could give a purple flame just out of curiosity cesium gives a blue violet flame which is radioactive i believe and potassium gives off lilac flame those are the only two i can find really quickly again thank you wikipedia yep but that's just interesting wikipedia the third host of this show (laughs) the beam he uses to take out the bombers from the sky and then the back lasers start yeah they basically he blows up some of the planes and the american pilots are like in the most stilted voices you can imagine both in the dub and in the sub he's took out our friend Time for payback. And then they circle around and they bomb him again. And he releases an array of beams from his spines to stop the bombs from hitting him. And they're not like in a straight line either. They're kind of 
pointed all over the place, mm-hmm. originating from his spine. Yeah. It kind of looks like a light show. Yes. <laughs> it also, like, definitely looks like everything about Shin Godzilla and all of his powers and appearances and everything. It looks completely unplanned and unnecessary. Like, this is not evolutionarily a thing that should happen. This is not natural in any way. It just, like, his body's kind of constantly falling apart is kind of how I <laughs> how I get, how He's I feel. He's like the old jalopy that is just held together with duct tape and gum. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they show the Prime Minister is evacuating in a helicopter with eight others when he's hit by a beam. Right. And they had, they convinced him to leave for his own safety. I know. Only to get taken out in the evacuation. Yeah, it's very um, very shocking in the moment. From, a beam from Godzilla's mouth, which feels more apt. Yeah, that he gets. It's not an accidental beam. It's a it's a directed one, which feels more like it has more weight to it. Like the death yeah. is more meaningful. Yeah. It's not like he's targeting the prime minister, though. No, but I mean, it's you know how when sometimes people will die off screen in movies, and sure. you just find out later that they died, and you're like, "What? Excuse yeah. me, when did this happen?" Yeah. And here he's given like a main character's death, movie-wise, mm-hmm. not not in movie, but from the perspective of the writers, I right. feel like he was given more weight to his death. Yeah. And then he just stops, and he starts turning into like a statue like he kind of freezes over yeah um, mid-step yeah and he his color changes it really does look like he's turning into stone yeah uh there's actually a great shot right before he turns into statue form where it's a wide shot of the city and there's flames everywhere and he's kind of walking through it and it looks exactly like a more modern version of a shot from the first godzilla movie I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Shall we discuss the song? Yes. Okay. So a song begins playing right when he opens his mouth to begin uh, shooting his flames. This is a song that was written by the composer uh, Shiro Sagisu. We will come back to Shiro Sagisu when we talk about the rest of the people who made this movie. But he wrote this song. It is actually being sung in English. Is Um, it? It is. I could not tell you that if I was listening to it. So what we are going to do is we are going to read the lyrics together. It is sung by both men and women. So I will have you read the women's lines and I will read the men's lines. Okay. The song is titled Who Will Know by Shiro Sugisu. You just wanted me to have to read more. (laughs) If I die in this world, who will know something of me? I am lost. No one knows. There's no trace of my yearning if I die in this world. But I must carry on. Who will know something of me? Nothing worse can befall. I am lost. No one knows. All my fears, all my tears. There's no trace of my yearning. Tell my heart there's a hole. I wear a void, not even hope. A downward slope is all I see. I wear a void. As long as breath comes from my mouth. (laughs) Not even hope. I may yet stand the slightest chance. A downward slope. A shaft of light is all I need. Is all I see. To cease the darkness killing me. It's so gothic. It is, <laughs> it's very goth. Uh, there is a large contingency of the fan community that believe this song is about Godzilla. Not anyone else in this movie. 
It's not about characters being killed. This is about Godzilla. It starts singing right as he opens his mouth for the first time. Ends when he stops shooting his beams and everything. It talks about, with you laughed at it, as long as breath comes from my mouth. Well, it was a little on the nose. And a shaft of light is all I need to kill the darkness inside of me. It is very likely about Godzilla's perspective in this movie, which is something that we don't normally get. Um, That's very sad, but I don't want to be sympathetic to Godzilla. There's a famous quote from, I believe, Ishiro Honda, and I think I've mentioned this in our podcast before, that the tragedy of giant monsters that they are is that they are just born too big, too strong, too ugly for our world. That, that That's is the only... so sad. Uh, and I think that this song is kind of a, uh, an attest, attest to that uh, quote. And I just really, really love it. It's the only characterization that Godzilla gets in this movie. He's not active. He doesn't show emotions on his face. But the fact that this song comes up, he's just been hurt. For the first time. Oh, you're making me sad about Godzilla. <laughs> if I die in this world, who will know something of me? No one's going to know his song. So anyway, Godzilla's sad in this movie. Yeah. I definitely think that the movie takes on a whole new tone if you actually know what they're singing about. So in the aftermath, the radiation in the area has shot up expectedly, you know. He and... just shot radioactive fire throughout all of Tokyo, <laughs> Yes. And they moved the headquarters for the government. Yaguchi is... They they have a scene of Yaguchi resuming the strike team at the new headquarters. Mm -hmm. They tell him that the prime minister was reported dead. And he just snaps, we'll make do. And a bunch of his cabinet are also dead. Like, most of the people in charge of the country are dead. Because... Apparently, they just transported all, all of them in the same helicopter. I have a feeling that some of them died in separate helicopters. Oh, okay. It wasn't the only thing that got destroyed. Fair. So there's a shot. He Yaguchi is, like, I think, understandably having kind of a, a panic attack and is telling everyone they need to get back to work and all that. And Shuichi Izumi, who we saw briefly early on, who's a friend of Yaguchi's, comes up with a water bottle and kind of smacks the water bottle into his chest and is like, hey, take a drink. And it's such a like commercial. Yeah, it is. It's like a Snickers bar commercial. Yes, that was what I was going to say. Totally is. This got memed so much, especially in Japan. It was a heavily memed scene because uh, it's just like a bro love thing, <laughs> right? It's two guys looking out for each other sort of thing and like helping each other with their emotions in a manly way. It's such a weird, <laughs> such a weird thing to become memed, but I love it. So uh, they've, they've appointed an acting prime minister, agriculture minister, Yusuke Satomi. Yeah. The president of the United States is now the head of the... I don't know, uh, food, FB, FDA. the FDA, the FDA chief is now in charge of the United States is essentially <laughs> what that means. He is meeting with his advisors, his cabinet, whatever you want to call them. And his advice, the thing he tells them when they're leaving, try to avoid unforeseen surprises. First of all, how that is what a surprise is. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> Has he looked out his window? Yeah, that's not helpful advice. And then afterwards, once they've left, he says, My noodles got soggy. I knew this job wouldn't be easy. 
For some reason, this scene is not in the dub of the movie. Is it not? Yeah, and I don't understand He's why. He's just kind of like a dopey old man. It's like my favorite scene in the movie is him just being like, oh man. But, I mean, you've got to respect him. This guy just took over a country having zero preparation for it. Yeah. He's... After, like, multiple back-to-back huge nationwide disasters. Yeah, and he's not high on the hierarchy. He would never expect himself to suddenly yeah. become a uh, prime minister. And I mentioned, this, I mentioned this before, but they keep flashing people's titles across the screen mm-hmm. constantly throughout the movie because people's titles are always changing. Yeah. So let me read this one. Cabinet Minister of State for Special Missions, Giant Unidentified Creature, Unified Response Task Force, Headquarter Bureau Chief and Deputy Director, Rando Yaguchi. Yep. Yaguchi specifically (laughs) keeps gaining new titles as he goes. I feel like it gains like five words every time he gets a new title. Mm -hmm. So Yaguchi's holding a meeting of the strike team. Apparently more than half of them came back, which is pretty impressive considering... Yeah. They just watched a bunch of people they were working alongside die. Mm-hmm. They're continuing with their plan to freeze Godzilla, which they called the Yaguchi plan. Right. They have private companies who are working on the coagulants for them, and they were able to obtain some samples from Godzilla. Kayoko, the U.S. envoy that we met earlier, requested a meeting with the prime minister. She discusses a movement which is being led by China and Russia to take over handling Godzilla by international forces because sure. Japan's not really having any success. Sure. Which I get that it's going to very quickly become a global issue if they aren't able to handle it here. But at the same time, when there's so much at stake for your country, they clearly don't want to lose control to other countries who just don't have any incentive to protect their people, right. their infrastructure. Right. And so Kayoko saying that sh- the U.S. just wants to keep it between the U.S. and Japan. The U.S. obviously having the incentive of not wanting their mistake to get out. Yep. Acting Chief Cabinet Secretary Hideki Akasaka declines to let the U.S. in on their decisions. And instead, they offer a U.S.-Japan-Gojira Research Coalition. Don't they use a weird phrase or something? Like, it's a one-for-one? I don't know. I didn't write it down if yeah, they did. It's a, it, they use a weird phrase. So, basically what this means is they just bring in some U.S. scientists to the the task force. Mm -hmm. They are trying to get some video surveillance, but it cuts out as they get near Godzilla, so they think he might have some, quote, built-in phased array radar. So, here, I did a lot of trying to figure out what this means. Here's what I think that means. Godzilla has senses that are akin to a radar. He's, like, letting out uh, some form of radiation, like could be light, could be whatever. It's bouncing back, and he's able to like read what's on, going on around him. And then I guess he can just shoot a tiny laser at them. What? Because the radar wouldn't cause the drone to die unless he uses I, something for a radar that we don't. I guess that's true. I kind of feel like he's just shooting a tiny laser at it, which is weird. I don't think that's what's happening. That doesn't feel like what's happening here. I could find no official explanation of what's going on, and that's the best I got. So I feel like at some point you just have to say, this is not, this is a fantasy movie. I couldn't find anyone talking about how it works in the movie, though. That's fair. I don't know. Hand-waving. Yeah, definitely. They also are discussing how surveyors have found some 
It's like a spiky flesh thing. <laughs> Their theory is that Godzilla is capable of reproducing asexually via colonization. And then they're kind of spitballing ideas. Like maybe that could mean he could um, have a smaller size or even sprout wings. Yeah. I think is like the extreme of where this could go. Yeah. And so the U.S. Con- the U.S. scientists come out as concluding that nuclear weapons are the only way to save mankind. They use the term, I believe, will show them our nuclear wisdom. <laughs> what? I don't know, man. The idea of Americans saying that to Japan also is like, <laughs> who are these people? It's just so out of touch. What? Why would anyone say that? <laughs> Especially on Japanese soil. <laughs> Kayoko tells Yaguchi that the defense secretary ordered a nuclear strike on Tokyo and she was supposed to evacuate. Yeah. But she refused to leave and says she won't see a third bomb dropped. This on the hometown, homeland of her grandmother, I believe is what she says. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to sympathize with feeling an attachment to like a grandparents. Sure. Ethnicity. Sure. I don't know. But uh, you know, in general, yeah, we yeah, don't want yeah. another bomb. This is one of my... That part I agree with. I just didn't catch on to... I mean, I didn't latch on to the phrase about her grandmother because, again, to me, it's hard to understand sure. that aspect of it. Sure, but... sure, sure. But this is one of my favorite scenes um, cinematically because they're walking along and you've got the camera tracking. It's above them and it's following them along. And then she says that they're talking about dropping a bomb and she stops and he stops, and the camera keeps going, and it gets higher and higher, and it just feels like it cinematically is showing the feeling of, like, the world is moving past them. Like, they are out of control. They don't have any way to catch up to how the That's a cool going. interpretation of it. I love that shot. In my head, I even can remember that shot specifically of the camera pulling away above them. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have interpreted it that way. I don't know if I would have interpreted it at all. So <laughs> that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. So the Prime Minister Satomi has agreed to a nuclear bombing of Tokyo. The UN Security Council passed a resolution for US-led forces to exterminate Godzilla. All the countries have agreed um, all the countries of the UN have agreed to support the rebuilding if Japan agrees to this plan. Which that's cool. Like we all agree we need to drop a big bomb on your country, but we are all going to pitch in money to help you rebuild. That's kind of a cool, like, way to do that. Yeah, it just feels like, don't worry, babe, I got you. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> definitely is not a good solution, but, like, they're not just going to drop it and say, like, all right, you got this, right? Don't worry, you're just losing a foot, but we'll buy you a prosthetic. It'll be a nice shiny one. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that was a weird um, comparison. And Akasaka and Yaguchi are talking, and and Akasaka brings up that nuke might actually be what's best for the economy, at least. Because right now, everything's just kind of in free fall. Mm -hmm. But if they do this, they're basically just scrapping and starting over. And they bring up the term scrap and build, which I know you looked up while we were watching. Yeah. Scrap and build is the philosophy that Japan took after World War II when they were rebuilding and kind of encompasses all of their philosophy when it comes to infrastructure and buildings and stuff like that, which is you don't uh, renovate or remodel or reuse a building. 
you tear it down and you build a new one. So if something no longer serves a purpose, you get rid of it, you put in something new. This was like the idea that they had to help them get over the fact that they were having to tear down a bunch of historical buildings and stuff after World War II. And I know that this was, this is credited with why Japan was such a powerhouse. It was the country that the U.S. was most worried about financially, not... Economically. Yeah. yeah. Um, And we actually passed a lot of bills to just even keep up with Japan because mm-hmm. they were, they came back so big and yep. they were such a powerhouse. Yep. And a lot of that comes back to this philosophy. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that it wouldn't be a big deal because they... They've done it before and they'll do it, it again. Exactly. So meanwhile, the task force has found a promising coagulant that they think will work for this, for this. So now they just have to go into production. They need 672 kiloliters. It's a lot. Of this coagulant. That's a lot. And they plan to work right up until the end, up through the evacuation period, meaning it sounds like they're not going to evacuate with everybody. Yeah, they don't. This will hopefully prevent a nuke needing to be dropped, so they are betting their own lives on trying to, to stop this nuke. Yes. And so Godzilla starts to glow again. Yep, the engine's starting back up. Acting special advisor to to the Prime Minister, Shuichi Izumi, is talking to the Prime Minister. They think that the creature, or Godzilla, is likely to gain his full breath attack within the next 360 hours. Okay. That's three weeks? No. Well, 36 hours is a day and a half. Uh Uh-huh. Times ten. So it's a week. Five days. No, a day and a half times ten is two weeks. Two weeks. I know math. (laughs) So about two weeks, and he's likely to resume activity in less than 15 days, which is what we just said. (laughs) They have this weird scene where they have three U.S. officials of some kind in a dark office, and there's they're each centered in their own window, side by side with each other, looking out, discussing what's going on. Uh, They're talking about how there's they have two weeks to evacuate everyone in Japan. And they said, that seems pretty long for Allied forces, but too short for Japan to do it. I mean, it's probably true. There's a lot of urban, not urban, there's a lot of uh, rural parts of Japan nearby. Well, this is mostly Tokyo. Right, but it, like even Tokyo is like half metropolis, half rural. So like I can't, I think the idea is that they don't have the infrastructure for that big of an evacuation that quickly. Maybe. I would think if anyone, Japan would actually have a better shot at it because look how on the dot their public transit system is. It's true. But we know that at least uh, some Japanese people who wrote American people saying <laughs> this line thought that... <laughs> well, they think that that's our opinion of them. Yeah. Not that... They actually believe that themselves. They clearly disagree, which is what a lot of this movie is saying, is look yeah. at the innovation of Japan and look at how much we can accomplish. Yeah. There's a brief scene where Akasaka tells some men that the time frame will be moved up once Godzilla starts moving, mm-hmm. regardless of casualties. Right. Shimura makes good on that bargain with a reporter and exchanges information they have on Godzilla. Mm-hmm. 
for the information that the reporter got on Goromaki with the promise that the government gets to control the release date of that information. He learned that Goromaki was attempting to nullify radioactive material after his wife died of radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. In the process, learned that this method can be used to make new material. And so he's he kind of asks, why did he leave these notes with the quote, do as you like? Mm-hmm. The task force still can't figure out this chart that they were left with. Right. Why was it on paper? Why was it not a, a set of data? Why is it just... I mean, it is a set of data. Sure, it's, but... It's a weird translation. But why did they just leave it as numbers thrown across a page? Right. If it's supposed to be something that is in three-dimensional space, like, maybe it's supposed to be. Why is it not on a computer in, like, a three-dimensional... like? There's a lot of, exactly, there's a lot of discussion, like, why would he do it like this? One of them proposes that maybe it's origami, which does track because it was found with a origami swan, right? Origami crane, yep. Origami crane, thank you. And so after they start messing with it and folding it, they think that it might be a molecular chart for converting elements in the body. Mm -hmm. And that the unknown radio, the radioactive isotope they found is proof of that and it it does kind of look like the organic chemistry charts where you have to show how one molecule um or sorry how molecules combine to form another molecule Mm -hmm. where you have to show the movement of the electrons with arrows it does kind of look like that and that is what i uh, brought up when we first saw it yeah that's cool have you seen those i have not i've never had to do that it's awful. You have to memorize these maps. And there's not really a good way to memorize them other than just, like, staring at them for hours on end. Okay, yeah, it looks kind of like that. I can see it. Where you have, like, the elements and you show arrows of, like, okay, this... When you add this, then this electron jumps over here, which then causes a negative here so that this one attaches here. And, oh my gosh, it's awful. It's, like, PTSD. <laughs> So, they think that he might be creating molecules in order to make energy, that he just needs air and water in order to do so. Yeah. Which does track if he's doing exothermal reactions, reactions that give off energy, then that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. And also, he's essentially performing nuclear fusion um, instead of fission. He's not splitting atoms he's combining them to create his energy which is what the sun does and the sun is doing that just off of uh hydrogen yeah so between water and air you have all the like most basic elements Mm -hmm. and they're the simplest ones to combine in that way so it completely makes sense he doesn't eat anything he just is his own power source as long as he has water and air but now they're worried that the Yaguchi plan, the, the plan to freeze him, might not work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a fair worry. So they start running data. They borrow some supercomputers from around the world. They do a little schmoozing and get people to run this program on their computers for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's a really cool scene where I think they're in Germany. Yeah. And this guy goes up to a business partner of some kind. He's like, should we charge him for it? She's like, no, Mm -hmm. it's our duty as humans to help another country out. 
when they're in need. So we're not going to charge them for this. I just, I really like this scene. Yeah, me too. So they think, and I only barely understand. I don't know if I understand this. An inhibitor that works on extremophile cell walls, in addition to the coagulant, could solve the problem. Sure. It makes sense. Those words all make sense, I guess. Or... Well, like bacteria that can live in places like um, underwater vents. Uh-huh have to have some type of adaptation where they're not denatured. Their proteins aren't denatured due to the heat. Sure. So they would have to have some type of adaptation, like maybe a, what they're saying, an inhibitor inhibitor on their cell wall to protect them from that extreme heat. So they're thinking something like that to keep their coagulant from breaking down. Okay. Is my, what I'm thinking, what they're saying. That makes sense. I could be misunderstanding it. Again, I'm not an expert in this field. Yeah. It's vague memories from my, my bachelor's. And we see Yaguchi and um, Kayoko having another discussion. They're they're talking about what Goromaki's mindset was, Mm -hmm. why he did what he did. They think Maki left clues as a test for Japan and for humanity. And the do as you like means including nuking. Yeah. I can't care anymore. Here's the information I found. Use it or don't, I don't care. Right. Especially since it is implied in the intro that he has uh, committed suicide. Because you see his shoes neatly next to each other and he's not on his boat anymore. So it's implied that he has jumped into the ocean to commit suicide. So he's probably not around anymore. <laughs> Um, Izumi pitches the Yaguchi plan to the Prime Minister. You'd think if they were at the stage of creating the coagulants, they would have pitched it already. <laughs> but that's where we're at. They probably did pitch it to the previous Prime Minister. Oh, good point. Because they even discussed it with the pre- previous Prime Minister that it wasn't ready yet. Yeah. And they decide to act despite the U.S.'s intentions, who's just fine with blowing up the country. Mm-hmm. and Just to cover up their prior knowledge. So the Prime Minister approves of it. Yaguchi then brings the plan to the military leaders, the ones who are actually going to be carrying it out. Operation, quote-unquote, Yashiori, mm-hmm. um, is what they're calling it. What the military names it. After the sake, Susanoo. Sasunoo. Sasunoo. Um, that was used to put, uh, quote-unquote, Hydra to sleep. Do you know that... Um, yeah. That myth they seem to be referring to? Yeah, Sasuno... Sasun, hmm, it's a hard name for Amer- for English speakers to say, I found. Sasuno is a uh, mythological hero in Japanese mythology, in Shinto mythology. And he was fighting uh, Orochi, the eight-headed dragon uh, hydra, I guess. And the way that he defeated Orochi involved him giving the dragon sake which put it to sleep so that he could kill it that's a good translation actually from 800 dragon to hydra mm-hmm. it's actually a very good translation i see why they chose that yeah and i think it's such a cool name it's for this perfect yeah they're putting him to sleep with a, a drink so the task force they're almost done they just need three days to finish producing all the coagulant they need so they talk to the politicians about pulling some political strings to try to buy them some time Mm -hmm. and right after that they show kayuko talking with one of the other u.s officials and they 
mention that France has stepped in to request a delay. Yep. And how Kayoko is risking her career and her plan to be president in her 40s by backing the Yoshi- Yashiori plan. And as much as I wish it weren't true, the idea of having a young female person of color as president, not very realistic. Yeah. Again, as nothing against, I don't think that she shouldn't be president. Yeah. I just don't think it would happen. No, I wouldn't. Uh, there's a cool little bit here where they're brainstorming what countries they can talk to. Mm-hmm. And they come to France because, like, they could have talked to China, but it's too close to Japan. And so it prob- they, China would probably want them to drop the bomb so that... Godzilla doesn't come to them if the plan doesn't work. So France is far away, and <laughs> it's nuclear. It's a nuclear power that is also very strongly anti-nuke. And so, like, they hone in specifically on France because it's the only one that fits all these, like, specific... That's interesting. I think I missed that, or it went over my head. Maybe I was taking notes. Yeah. I just thought it was because they had a special relationship with France, or somebody did, and they were able to pull strings, like, backdoor that... talks. They mentioned that, too. It's okay. Like, oh, and I also have a person in France who I can talk to. Okay. that I think that's the part I... Yeah, it's it's the two of those. So, Kayoko and Yaguchi get together, and they agree on a joint operation using U.S. Air Force, Marine volunteers, and drones. Mm-hmm. So, they're putting the plan into action. Yaguchi decides he's actually going to operate from the forward command center, as opposed to um, at a distance. And we will see, like... He's not that far away. I know. He's about as far away as the Prime Minister was when he got killed. Yeah, exactly. Like, this Godzilla has a very long reach with its beams. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's right in the middle of it. Izumi argues, again, like I said, that he should stay further away. He says, you want to be Prime Minister in ten years. And Yaguchi says, gotta make sure the country's around in ten years. Mm-hmm. And Izumi says, there's a lot of young talent like you. I don't know what that means. He's saying that in reference to... The reason I make, made a note of that is because I think this this kind of works into one of my theories of um, one of the themes for the movie. Okay. And I'll, So we'll, again, circle back to that. Okay. But I just wanted to make sure I mention that here. Izumi is being complimentary of all that Yaguchi has accomplished to get to this point. Okay. So. Right. I'll, we'll put a pin on that. <laughs> Uh, Yaguchi then gives a good uh, speech to the team. He says, this will be dangerous, but this is important. And Godzilla, uh, sorry, and Japan's greatest strength is in the field. Mm-hmm. And they break it up into phases. So phase one, diversion. They wake Godzilla up. Yep. For some reason. Yep. With trains full of explosives. He just happens to be at the center of all these train tracks. So they just shoot trains at him full of explosives. This part I don't mind because he was frozen there. So they know exactly where he is. So they Yeah, would... but he just happened to have frozen over train tracks. Well, they would have done a different thing if he hadn't. That's true. Phase two, U.S. aerial assault. They start attacking him with drones. Yep. And drones he's start... taking them out with his beams. Mm-hmm. Drones start dropping bombs. They explicitly say they want him to use up as much energy as possible so they're sending waves of drones yeah and then he uses his tail and his mouth yes to shoot beams out yes so there's a a blink and you miss it sort of uh hint that this is coming there's 
you see Godzilla as a statue, and then it kind of goes up to his tail real fast, and you can see the weird skull that's in the tip of his tail, mm-hmm. and the lower jaw of it just kind of goes clunk. Oh. It, like, opens a little bit. I want to look for that next yeah. time we watch this. It's such a small moment. It happens, like, five minutes before this happens. I wonder if there's a YouTube video on that specific scene. Because yeah. I'm, I'm sure there is. People tear these things apart. Yeah, I can find it for you. But, um, yeah, he shoots a beam out of his tail. From both mouths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. He's turning into a hydra, right? He's gaining multiple heads. I guess. Huh? Huh? I don't know. I mean, maybe that is what they're going for with the, the other head. Yeah, it's maybe. It's possible. But they mentioned that the beams are twice as intense and that the radiation is way more than they were expecting. Mm-hmm. The purple me- beams then kind of fade to more of a red and then they just stop completely. So their plan is working. He's running out of juice. Yes. And he hasn't eaten in a while. or Like, he hasn't been able to intake anything in a while because he's been a statue. So right. it makes sense. Right. Phase three is stationary blasting. They collapse buildings on him using um, specifically placed explosives. Sure. Okay. Better than dropping a nuke, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this is a lot smaller and it's not going to leave lasting damage as far as radiation. Yeah. This seems like a lot, but okay. It is. It's a lot. Um, Phase four is a guided blast. They use U.S. missiles to collapse more buildings on him. And managed to knock Godzilla over. Mm -hmm. And then phase five, special crane platoon. They bring in concrete pumps. I looked up what these are called because um, I had originally thought that they designed special trucks for this. But they actually are just concrete pumps. They're for getting concrete to the top of like a skyscraper. Which makes sense. Yeah. And um, I had never seen these before this movie. I had never thought about how they would do that. Yeah. So I watched this movie the first time and then like two weeks later I saw one like out in the wild and I was like, oh, those are real. <laughs> uh, so they bring in the concrete pumps and quote unquote Hydra Slayers. Yeah. Which I don't think we ever really figured out what those were supposed to like. What they were indicating were the Hydra Slayers. I think it's just the name of the the group of people. Like, I think that's their role. Oh, that's like the team name. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So those move in. They use the cranes to pour coagulant into his mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's like 15 cranes at once. It's a huge number. And man, I would not want to be one of these crane operators. No. They only need 15. (laughs) Not me. You're standing right in front of Godzilla's mouth. (laughs) No. Uh Uh-uh. So they get to about 30% done when he starts waking up and takes out one of the cranes with a breath attack. But his movement is slowed. They use some train bombs to collapse Godzilla again. And then the the cranes come back in. These next train bombs are the ones that I have a problem with. It's like they just knew he was going to be walking because he's been walking forward this whole time. They just knew somehow he was going to end up on this specific train track. Yeah, I did brush over the part that he's moving as they're doing this. They didn't really direct him in any any direction because he can easily walk through the wreckage of these buildings that collapse. So I don't don't know. So it just happens to be that he lands on this train track and so they shoot a bunch of trains at him and... It's a weird shot, and I don't know. I just kind of shrug at it. It's like, eh, it's, eh, it's weird. So the cranes come back in. 
new cranes. <laughs> no, it's the same cranes. Only one got taken out by the breath weapon. Okay. And Godzilla starts to move just as they get 100% of it administered. And his skin starts stiffening, but he stands and then freezes in the standing position. They say he's negative 196 degrees. Yeah. So he is frozen. And you can see he goes, there's like a sound effect of like, of like, oh, he's ice now. (laughs) It's weird. Yeah. I I don't know the science of this. I can't say that this wouldn't happen or that this doesn't make sense scientifically. I don't have enough of a specialty to say that it doesn't sound real to me i can't imagine that was how it would work but whatever it doesn't sound right but maybe it's really old or really cold blood coagulant maybe it's like a mixture of coagulant with like liquid nitrogen freezing agent yeah i don't know so they did it and with less than one hour to the bomb they give credit to the prime minister convincing france Mm -hmm. to buy them time and they in the aftermath, discovered that the new isotope, the new radioactive isotope it was that Godzilla was creating, has a half-life of 20 days. So um, they say, quote-unquote, it'll be half the amount of radiation in a month and gone in about two to three years. So yep. it's a very clean kind of storybook ending. Mm-hmm. It all works out in the end. Akasaka congratulates Yaguchi. The Satomi cabinet, which is the second PM, is resigning en masse. Um, which is the prime minister's idea. Mm-hmm. They're discussing how the capital and government are in shambles with 3.6 million refugees. And they're about to have a new general election and they'll need a new cabinet. Mm-hmm. They rose through scrap and build and they'll do it again. So this is where they bring in scrap and build. I'd misremembered before, but just yeah. bring that conversation to here. <laughs> it all works. And then we end, I think, very appropriately with Kayoko and Yagushi having a discussion. Kayoko saying that the countdown has been suspended, but it's going to commence if he start when he starts moving again. Right. Which I don't know how that would work logistically because they were less than an hour. Do we have the ability to launch nukes at, at Japan within an hour? Probably. At a notice, I guess we probably do. <laughs> um, Yagushi agreed in order to keep the world satisfied. Mm-hmm. They've shared the data they've collected with France and the world, and they just talk about how they have to live with Godzilla now, mm-hmm. which sounds very apt for the times, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> they have a conversation about uh, Yaguchi being prime minister and Kayoko being the president, which, sure. Sure. I could see for him that happening, but... Yeah, she didn't really like win anyone over from the u.s in this move no i guess maybe some politicians but like yeah i don't know i don't know there were a lot of casualties but they're choosing to own up to them mm-hmm. he mentioned he refers to the um quote do as you like right and then they have a really cool shot of yaguchi with godzilla in the background in the buildings with the sheared tops from the lasers yeah it's really really cool I love that Godzilla is just a part of the skyline. I know. (laughs) Which they could totally do that. They They could just build a life-size Godzilla. Yeah, they should. (laughs) They've got tons of land that they don't need in Japan, right? It's not a tiny island. Especially in the middle of Tokyo. Yeah. (laughs) But they do end by saying that things are far from settled. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a storybook ending, but... Yeah. I would say 
the next shot makes it less of a story story beginning. Yeah, so then the last shot, the very very last shot of the of the movie is zooms in at the tip of Godzilla's tail where there's these alien looking creatures like sprouting off of his tail. They do look like the aliens from Aliens. They do. Yeah. What do you think that means? Um, that they stopped him just in time to prevent him from shooting off a ton of babies from his tail. <laughs> so you think it's a reproduction thing he was doing? Well, they did mention theorizing that he could reproduce asexually via colonization, as they put it. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that would mean. Like, Well, it makes me think of, you know how you can take like a cutting of certain succulents and just replant that? Sure. It just makes, makes me think of like that. Okay. That is, de- that is one big theory about this. The other theory is that this is the fifth form of Godzilla. That he mutates based on what uh, different issues he's having. Like, he mutates in response to stuff. And here, he was being taken down by a group of smaller uh, creatures working together. And so he his next form would be him turning into a bunch of smaller creatures. I can see that, except for the thing is that he's splitting up into multiple creatures, which is by its definition reproduction. So it's less him shrinking and more him growing new things. I guess either way it's a reproduction thing. Yeah, um, a reproduction by its very nature is creating a new I think that the difference individual. the difference is between is he producing a bunch of these and also big Godzilla is going to be a thing or is all of him going to turn into these things? Like he's going to split into a billion of them and like everything. I guess, but I think we're not, we're going into a philosophical debate about if you completely replace all the boards of a boat, is it still the same boat? Like, I think we're going into a philosophical debate here. I think we're really essentially agreeing on what's happening. It's just arguing over, is that the individual or is this the offspring is the question that we're having. I think that for me, the big question is, is this just how he reproduces or is this in response to how the humans are taking him down? Well, it could be both. It It could could be be that him reproducing and the next generation being small is a mutation in the sense of mutations in this movie. Right. In response to the stimulus, to the threat. That makes sense. So that was Shin Godzilla. I would say this is definitely one of the best Godzilla movies I've seen. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is top five, top three best Godzilla movies. It's definitely the closest um, emotionally, feeling-wise, to the first movie. It definitely takes itself... It takes itself seriously... And it has the money behind it, and it has a lot of the same weight to it that the first movie does. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. It feels like, I think you've said it before, the spiritual sequel. It's a spiritual remake, I think. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it, because it's certainly not a sequel to anything. Yeah. Um, And I think that that idea that it's a spiritual remake also is in some of the details, because we have a lot of... Uh, Ikira Ifukube's music in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Godzilla's roar is the same sound effects as in the original Godzilla movie. He's mm-hmm. just roaring the exact same as he does in the original movie. To the extent where his roar c- 
kind of is not as good quality as the sound on the rest of the movie because they're using old Godzilla roars, which mm-hmm. I think is great. Um, and the logo at the beginning of the movie, don't remember if we said this before, the logo at the beginning of the movie for Toho is the old to- Toho logo. It's not their current I didn't one. know that. Um, and so there's, it really is something completely new and weird and original, but it is paying homage to the first movie so much. Yeah. It's in its DNA. I feel like if you have something that's been around as long as Godzilla has a, a franchise and I guess this would be a property that's been around as long as Godzilla has and has taken so many iterations that take it in so many different directions mm-hmm. that you really are building up a fan base that where the joy is in the references like yeah that's a big part of what people like is it's this it's it's this collection of knowledge yeah that you've built up and seeing other people who share in that joy with you through that collected knowledge mm-hmm. that you really don't have any other purpose for is this space taking up in your it's this take taking up the space in your brain that really has no other purpose sure other than your enjoyment of it but unlike some movies, Cough Cough, Ready Player One, in this, the references are not the point. Yeah, that's that's Th- true. This is a, a movie on its own that has a heritage to it, so it makes references. But it is its own thing, and it's not trying to be anything else. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I just I just think that references are really how you can tell that somebody loves the the material. Yeah, I agree. It's a way of saying, look, I, I love Godzilla just as much as you do to the fans. Sure. Yeah. I think that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the uh, crew or the themes? Well, I think we've both been just begging to get into the themes. So I think <laughs> we should do that first. Okay. Talk to me. Talk to me about your ideas. So there's one clear theme, right? The clear theme is the red tape that bureaucracy doesn't adapt easily. I think that's the biggest thing they're saying here, that things are slow moving. It doesn't respond to emergencies well. We have all of these policies just for the sake of having policies that don't really help anything. It's just a bunch of people like beating their chests. And I wonder if... So this this kind of branches for me. One is, it feels like... I guess it's not so much branches. It feels like a comment to me on Japan's focus on tradition mm-hmm. and respecting the, your elders and a lot of weight that's put in that. Where in this movie, the young people are the ones who step in and save the day. They kind of push the... Uh, once they're finally left to their own devices, the people who are young, because there's only really one older person in that task force, the people who are kind of like the new minds, the leaders in their fields, not even leaders in the fields, the people who are young and have all these new ideas, they're the ones who come in and save the day. They're like, um, they are thinking outside of the traditions and even the line where they say, when he says there's a lot of young talent like you, mm-hmm. it feels like this movie is making a statement about valuing the young and the fresh minded and the people who can see past 
doing traditions for the sake of traditions, which feels very much a stab at what Japanese culture is or a very big part of Japanese culture. Sure. I think that uh, to that point, it's very telling that you mentioned there was one older person in the task force. And I think it's very telling that the one person who is in that task force who is older is not a government official at all. He's a professor. He's a scientist. And they call him a heretic. And they call him a heretic. <laughs> they call they say heretic as they flash across him on the screen. Exactly. So he's not he's not a part of the The system. The system that this movie is he's commenting an on. Not traditional older person. Exactly. And he definitely certain he certainly does not dress conservatively. He wears like a bright pink tie. No, it's a scarf. Oh, it's a scarf. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's there feels like it feels like on the surface there's a lot of ageism. I guess not ageism, that's not the word for it. But like there's a lot of comments on letting the people the the young people come in and giving credence to their ideas and reviewing all these things that that they have in place to examine is this useful or is this just here because it's always been here i agree i agree with everything you said <laughs> so that was the biggest one that yeah. i thought was the most obvious that i kept seeing over and over again i agree for me i think that this movie is kind of split into two big thematic sections right you've got the first part that is about the fukushima daiichi disaster and about government response and all of that. And then the other half is more about uh, two hot political topics. At least at the time they were hot political topics. I don't live in Japan. I don't know what their current political situation is. But the two really hotly debated topics at the time, probably still now, are or were... What is Japan's relationship to America and should we change that relationship? Because right now they are kind of, they don't have a lot of political push with America. They're kind of beholden to the U.S. Exactly. And the other is, should Japan build a military again? Should they go from beyond just having a self-defense force? Should they have a for real military again? Because they're past the point where they're required to have a defense force. And they have for now just decided to keep having just a defense force. But should they expand their military strength? So this movie, I think, is about everything you said. I'm not denying everything you said. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't it's take a, it that way. It's a dense text, which means that it, there are a lot of themes and there's a lot of ways you can read it. Um, and I think that those two ideas are very important in it. What is, like, should Japan change their relationship with America? Should we fight we being Japan, I'm not Japanese, but in this context, we. Should we, Japan, fight against uh, how things are being done between us and America? Should we become our own political giant? Should we uh, expand military strength? Um, these are all things that get talked a lot about in Japan right now, uh, or at least at the time. And I think that this movie is has things to say about that. Um, I can definitely see that. I can see all the uh, outside forces acting upon Japan mm -hmm. and Japan having very little say in its own 
direction, whether it be China and Russia stepping in trying to make it an international problem, the US using Japan to cover up their own mistakes. There's a lot of external forces here that are acting on Japan where Japan's shouldering the consequences. Right. And the way that they win the day is a combination of people on the ground doing the work. Like they even say that's Japan's strength is in the field. Mm -hmm. It's individuals working together for the greater goal. Mm -hmm. And it's them learning to be more political. They go to France and they lean on France so that France can lean on the UN and get the time stopped. I would even say it's interesting that a big part of the solution was all of the the information they got from the U.S. Right. And the political pull from the one person from the U.S. But I would even say Kayoko, the fact that she had Japanese heritage, I think that that's her taking off her U.S. hat and putting on her Japanese hat. Mm -hmm. So she's acting in her role as a Japanese descendant more than she's in her role as a... An American politician. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's has two sides of herself, and I think this says a lot for somebody who is uh, multicultural, mm -hmm. is the thing that she said when she decided to defy the U.S. orders is, I don't want to see a third bomb dropped on my grandmother's country. So right. she's she's acting from a place of personal beliefs and her own morals and integrity outside of what her country has decided on and what's best for the United States, at least according to the United States in this movie. Right. So I think even the, the play that the, the role that the U S plays in this solution is less of a U.S. role than it seems on the surface. Sure. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that this movie, you can read a lot into it. You can figure out a lot, but the fact that neither of us are Japanese and don't know the Japanese political situation, uh, I think kind of limits how much we can read from the movie. Yeah, we're missing that cultural lens that mm -hmm. they expect the audience to view this through and they themselves are viewing it through. This is not a Godzilla movie designed for international release. This is a Godzilla movie designed for a Japanese audience. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural context that mm. that I think someone making a movie within Japan may take for granted. I don't think that that's what they're I don't think they're not understanding that con that that context exists so much as they just don't care if we don't have that context. Well, and it's a movie about modern day politics in Japan. In Japan, you can't spend a lot of time holding people's hands. That's this true. Is, this is a conversation that the filmmakers are having with the audience about politics. And so you have to have some, like, grounding of understanding to be able to get that. So everything we just said, we're, what we're saying is take it with a grain of salt. And there's probably more there. We try to be respectful with our analysis of Japanese culture coming from a place of very little mm -hmm. current day knowledge on it. Yep. A lot of what we know, a lot of what Andrew knows is through movies and media. So if anyone has any altering uh, alternative takes on mm -hmm. the movie or any insight to the political system here, please let us know. We're happy to have a discussion about it. I would love like views on this movie that I haven't read before. I That would be so cool. Cause again, this movie is very dense. Uh, there's a lot there. So 
So, let's talk about who made this movie. Do you, it, Does the name Hideaki Anno mean anything to you? Not at all. Uh, how about Shinji Huguchi? Nope. Okay. This film was directed by both Hideaki Anno and Shinji Huguchi. Anno is best known as the creator for the incredible, one of the most important anime of all time, without a question. Oh. I want to guess. I want to guess. Okay. Is this Akira? No, but right time period-ish. Let me think. Is it? I don't know. What is it? Uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh, okay. Also known as Ava. You even compare a lot of things to Ava in this, like how the um, tail creatures look. I think you compared that to Ava a little bit. There's a lot of... I mean, it's the same creator, so there's a lot of Ava in this. Um, Hideaki Anno, so he's very well known, best known for his work on that series and the movie and then the series of movies more recently that are all Neon Genesis Evangelion. And there's so much that you could go into comparing the two. I'm not going to do that too much. But uh, of interest to you, however, Hideaki Anno's first job was as an animator on Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. There are some very big creatures in there uh-huh. that could be considered kaiju. Yep. And we'll actually talk about his connection to that uh, in a later episode. Famously, as he worked on Neon Genesis Evangelion, he became more and more disenfranchised with the whole anime industry, um, particularly with its fans. He, A lot of fans of Neon Genesis Evangelion were like contacting him and upset about stuff that he had done in the show and characters being taken a certain way. And he got death threats and like all these things Jeez. that awful fans do. And so he kind of... He had a lot of home life issues also. There's a lot written about this. He was spiraling into a really deep depression, and he started turning Evangelion into a story about his depression, sort of. Which is why we might not watch it, you and I. I think it's a fantastic show, and people should watch it, but I don't think it's an Amanda show. (laughs) (laughs) I do tend to like my media to have an element of escapism to it. There's no light in Evangelion. Yeah. It just... It heads... (laughs) into a dark place and it never comes out. I think I don't mind how dark Godzilla stuff is because it also has a lot of humor in it most mm-hmm. of the time. But yeah, I don't know if that's a me show. Yeah. So the the reason I bring it up is because Evangelion turned to something that was very dark and philosophical. He's in a different place now in his life. He's not having the same home life issues as far as we know. He's not as depressed anymore. But that is kind of the staple of his style, is he likes things to be philosophical. He likes to try and discuss big things with his art. And I think this movie does that. Absolutely. Um, Especially when you bring up the song that Godzilla sings, I guess. It's just the most emo, like, (laughs) 90s goth kid (laughs) aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shinji Higuchi, the other director is a close friend of Hideaki Anno. They have worked on a lot of stuff together. Uh, Shinji Higuchi was a, a writer on Neon Genesis Evangelion. And, in fact, the main character of Evangelion is named Shinji after Shinji Higuchi. Which, maybe not as flattering of a thing <laughs> as you might think. But we're going to be hearing 
a lot about specifically Shinji Higuchi because he was the special effects director for the amazing Gamera trilogy in the 90s. Um, He's done a lot of kaiju movies. He's done a lot of work in the industry and a lot of anime stuff, too. He's been around for as long as Hideaki Anno. And so the two of them, it's kind of like a power couple thing, you know? The two <laughs> a of power them are... couple that aren't romantically related. <laughs> exactly. So he also did all the special effects for this movie. He was the special effects director for this movie. And, and I would say they were very good. There was yeah. only one brief moment that pulled me out of it. For me, the, it was so minor. For me, the only bad special effect was uh, the trains that second time that were jumping up to bomb him. And it was weird. But it doesn't matter. It's very good special effects. This pair are currently working on in fact it will be released soon maybe will be already released in this episode Shin Ultraman exactly Shin Ultraman uh that's actually being directed by uh Shinji Higuchi with Hideaki Hideaki Anno like working on the side Mm -hmm. as like a he helped write like a special consultant or something exactly but it's still the two of them they're always working together and it you know it's cool uh the composer that I briefly mentioned, Shiro Sagisu, has done a lot of music for anime. Would you like to guess one that he's worked on? Is it Neon Genesis Evangelion? Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, he also did music for Ranma One Half and Nadia. I, that was the anime that got me into anime. There you go. I met a girl in camp who brought a bunch of manga with her for some reason. <laughs> and so that was when I discovered anime. I love it. Uh, he also did for Nadia Secret of the Blue Water, which I've never seen, but I've heard is very good, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the three of them together is basically a big Evangelion reunion. <laughs> and in fact, the new movies were all coming out around the same time as Shin Godzilla, so they were also working all together on the new movies for Evangelion. There was a whole bunch of Ava slash Godzilla crossover like official merchandise that came out at the time. That's very cool. Um, stuff that I can't really talk to you about because you don't know any of the <laughs> the anime, but it's still extremely cool. The audience might know. Oh, well, there's things like Ava Unit 1, like, turning into Godzilla. Like, got, like, Isn't mech that a mecha? Part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say yes. <laughs> um, but he's got, like, the... Ava like metal parts and he's also got the Godzilla spine and Godzilla tail and it's very cool it's extremely cool and there's also art of Ava Unit 1 fighting Godzilla and there's just a whole bunch of awesome stuff so basically they just recreated um Pacific Rim essentially yes and that is all that I have in my notes I have one more question for you what who would you recommend this movie for I would recommend this movie for anybody who thinks they might like kaiju movies. I think it's a very good intro kaiju movie because Mm -hmm. it's... When I say the best of, I'm not saying it that the other ones aren't fun or they're not... They don't have equally important things to say. Uh, What I mean is this has an excellent combination of a lot of money thrown at it. Mm Mm-hmm. In a time where we have very good access to mm-hmm. um, CG equipment and technology, and it has an amazing team of people who worked on it, I think this is one of the best of what Kaiju Movies has to offer. Absolutely. Done for a modern audience, because I love the first Godzilla movie, 
but it is of its time. It is old. Yeah, it's black and white. There's some things that are hard to see. There's a weird puppet. You have to <laughs> contend with either very bad voiceover or... Yeah. It's just of its time. As good as it is, and it does hold up, it is not for everybody. But this is a modern re retelling of a very good story. And it has a lot of things to say. There's a lot to get your teeth into. Mm -hmm. I would definitely recommend this for anyone, again, who wants to see what what kaiju movies are all about. And also anyone who is already in the kaiju movies. It's a very good version of it. It's, it's not campy. I know some people really like the campy stuff. It's not colorful. There's not a lot of humor in it, but it's just good. It's yeah. very high quality. It's a perspective you might not always get to see. Mm -hmm. And... I just think it's a very good movie. Even if you're not into kaiju movies, if you like action-adventure, maybe not that. Yeah. If you like horror, I think it can dip its toes into horror a little bit. Yeah. I would say this movie is good for anyone. I mean, maybe it's not a good, like, my kid's first introduction to Godzilla because there's a lot of better ones for kids. But, like, anyone who likes good movies, this is just a... Capital G, capital M, good movie. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's just a good movie. It's a good movie. If you are, if you have someone in your life who loves watching like every Oscar nominated movie or like they really like the intelligent like thinking man's movies sort of thing, <laughs> shove a Shin Godzilla in their direction. They will probably like it a lot. Clearly, Andrew likes thinking man's movies. <laughs> I'm a thinking man. <laughs> I agree. It's it's just a good movie. Okay, I have a harder question for you. Who would play Shin Godzilla <laughs> in our... It would be so weird to have Shin Godzilla in our weird, like... No, oh, our slice of life. Slice of life. In our weird slice of life show. We already have, I think, Godzilla being played by The Rock, if I remember <laughs> correctly. But Shin Godzilla is this whole other thing, so... Mm, I can see Shin Godzilla being, like... This could be, like, a Viggo Mortensen Oh, I can see Viggo Mortensen. He does he does action drama really well where he's like he can do a tragic villain or oh my gosh, you know who it would be? It would be I can see David Tennant being really good for this role cuz he's really good. If you've seen the Jessica Jones mm -hmm. the first season with David Tennant playing the Purple Man, he's such a good sympathetic villain. He can play a character who is tragic and just kind of lashing out yeah that being said i can also see somebody like um walking phoenix because <laughs> it's kind of just a joker role right yeah actually that fits with what i was gonna say which is um it's like a descent into madness kind of thing willem dafoe we already cast willem dafoe did we he was one of the potentials for king Ghidorah, maybe I thought we already said William Defoe. Well, if William Defoe's not already taken, we'll have him on our show for Shin Godzilla. I'm sure he's <laughs> begging to get on our show. <laughs> well, if you have any hot takes on a theme for Shin Godzilla that we missed, or another another perspective on a movie that we are clear uh, we are clearly only just getting the surface of, please. Email us at kaiju, kaiju island podcast at gmail.com. 
or at Island Kaiju on Twitter. Our intro and outro are Manga Maniac by Olive Music. And thank you for listening. Let's all fight bravely as a team. Punch, punch, punch!